Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Hell, it's your host. This is being broadcast live and recorded live just as we're finishing off Sunday, January 5th, 2020. The time right now, 11.58 p.m. Oh my goodness, can you believe it? We're doing a midnight show on Sunday night, Monday morning, and good for people in Europe who are up during the morning because it's about to be 8 a.m. there. Not so good for those in the U.S., especially those on the East Coast who are starting almost 3 a.m., East Coast time. I expect most of you to catch this in the archives, which is why we're having no free roll tonight. I can't imagine we would have very much of a live audience, especially because the time of this show and the day of the show was announced kind of last minute, which I will explain when I get to our first segment. No, I'm not sick. Nothing's wrong with me. So don't worry about that. But I will explain why it's kind of flaky this week as far as when we were going to be on. Trader Ruski, I wasn't sure if I could find him at this time. In fact, I didn't even communicate well with him what was going on. But uh, I, I just thought he logged in. So maybe we can actually reach him for a short time. This is usually the time he falls asleep. So not exactly feeling optimistic about how long we'll have him on here. But I did see him log on. He's awake. He's conscious. Traderus. What's happening, Jeff? You're happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm happy you're still awake. Have you started the tea yet? Yeah, I'm, I'm already on the second cup, so Uh-oh. I won't be lasting too long, okay, but I I'll fig- stay on as long as I can. I figured now. I appreciate you coming on with a short notice. So I'll go through the little intro of the show. Nothing to say with the free roll this week because we don't have it. That'll speed things up. If you want to call into the show... The phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone sitting up near or about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas on the top of Mount Charleston, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808 is the number to the Mount Charleston line. Either line will get through to the show. Make sure to show your caller ID, otherwise you won't get through. If you want to text the show, you can during, before, or after the show. Anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you may text me, and I will respond to you, most likely. 775-372-8355, our main number also serves as our text number. If you want to listen to the show live, you can do so in various ways. You can do so through the radio tab, where it may just start playing for you. If it doesn't, then click on the link for whatever device you're using. If you don't, if you're using a PC, try using the iPhone and iPad link. That'll probably work for you. Otherwise, just click on the link for the device to listen live. If it doesn't start automatically, you can also use the TuneIn app. We have two different entries on the TuneIn app for Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, just choose the one that's the live show. Furthermore, you can listen. Uh, well, you used to be able to listen on Amazon Alexa, but not anymore. I think they changed that. You can still hear the archives on Amazon Alexa. The call to listen line is always available to listen live. That's a number you can just call up and listen. Never buffers, never slows down, never freezes. Just plays, just works. Doesn't require a smartphone does not require a computer, does not require the internet or a data plan. All you need is a phone that can dial a phone number in the U.S. That's all you need. 
605-313-0736 is the number. 605-313-0736. The alternate number, 641-741-1095. That's the other number to call into the call to listen line. And when it's not on live, the show I'm talking about, when we're not on live, it'll play a streaming rerun from our library of well more well over 300 shows we've done in our eight-year history of this site. We are now in our second decade, kind of. We didn't start in 2010. We started in early 2012. But this is the 2020s. This is the first show of the year 2020. And we plan to keep broadcasting. Just plan to keep doing it with no end in sight. The chat room, if you're listening live, you can go into the chat room. You need a forum account in good standing. And you need a device which can do flash. If your device cannot do flash, such as an iPhone or an iPad, then you can't get into the chat room. But you can give it a shot if you have a device that is flash enabled. And you have to have a forum account that has been validated. And that's only during the live show. If you're listening to the archives, don't bother. There'll be nobody in the chat room anyway. So I'm going to go through the agenda this week. And then we will get going. First of all, I want to announce that we're going to have a huge free roll, not tonight, not this week, well, sort of this week. It'll be on January 10th, which is now less than five days from now. It just rolled over to be January 6th. But January 10th, 2020, we're going to have a very large free roll, one of the largest, not the absolute largest, but one of the largest we've had in the site's history. And we're giving away a very large sum of money all coming from one generous person. One million dollars. Not quite that much. We're giving away $500. $500 is going to be given away on Friday, January 10th at our free roll. I haven't assigned a time yet, but I think it'll be around 9 p.m. Just check when we get closer. It'll be around that time. It'll be Friday, January 10th. And unless I get sick or some emergency occurs, I'm not going to change that date. So you can plan to be there. This is a $500 cash free roll, and you're not going to have that much competition. The field will be a little bit bigger than usual because people will see the money and want to play, but it's not going to have like hundreds of people. It's still going to be fewer than 100 people. So mark the date down on your calendar if you like these free rolls. January 10th, $500 from Eric Benzamokin. We talked about that a while ago uh, privately, and I've teased it coming into this year. I said a big free roll is coming. It was supposed to be this week, but because we have this odd show here at midnight, we're not going to do a $500 free roll. We're not going to do any free roll this week. $500 next week. I'm sure that'll make up for it many times over, actually. And I thank Eric very much for his generosity. And just, I, I don't know what to say. It's just really, really nice that he does this for the site and for the show. It just Just because he wants to. Just because he wants to... Be kind to the fellow listeners of the show and to help out Poker Fraud Alert Radio. So that'll be next week. Usual rules apply, pokerfraudalert.com slash free roll. Wanted to make that announcement so you're, you can remember to be there for that. The first topic I'm going to talk about is not something that's a huge story in gambling or poker. In fact, it's not a story to anyone except for me, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway. I took a trip to Lake Tahoe for New Year's. That's where I spent my New Year's. And I surveyed and played the video poker there. I will tell you what I found since we've been discussing that recently about whether the 
good video poker in Lake Tahoe has been degraded. I'll tell you whether it has or hasn't and what my playing experience was. And I will also give you a tip on a secret place that's very good for snow play. If you have kids who want to play in the snow, but you hate the crowds of Lake Tahoe, I found a very good place, and I will give you a tip on where to play in the snow in Tahoe and avoid the crowds. A little bit later, we're going to get a call from Karina Jett, who's been a longtime listener to this and other shows I've been involved with. I wasn't even sure if she still listened, to be honest. Uh, I never know. I mean, I knew that Karina and her husband, Chip, were listeners to this show, but this was years ago. I didn't know if they gave up on it or quit. In fact, we lost some people just during my hiatus for a few months last year due to my health issues, and some people just never came back. They just got out of the habit of listening, and that's understandable. That happens when people get used to doing something every week, and then suddenly it stops for four months, and then they get unused to it. So I wasn't sure if they're still around, but I got a text from Karina recently uh, praising a certain segment I had done regarding uh, credit cards. And I said, oh, wow, they listen. Cool. They're still listening. Well, it turns out that uh, after that, I found out that uh, Karina is doing her uh, autism charity event so she's going to come on here and tell you guys about that. Now, this is not like a backdoor sponsorship or something where I'm giving giving money under the table to do an infomercial. Nothing like that. I just think it's a good cause, and Karina has been a longtime listener to this and other shows I've been part of, and I know her personally. So she's going to come on to tell you guys about the autism charity event called uh, Anti for Autism. And if you're in Vegas when that event uh, takes place in late January, then I encourage you to play. Some people have been asking me, in fact, a lot of people have been asking me for updates on the Mike Possel situation, and it's going to be very slow. There's not going to be many updates, but I have a small update again regarding the, quote, independent investigator who is going to look into the whole thing that they hired named Michael Lipman. He isn't very independent, by the way, as we've mentioned before. Well, he's become even less independent. I will tell you why in that segment. Brian Wojtek, we've talked about him many times, the ACR money trade scammer. If you want to trade money, if you want to uh, send someone PayPal in exchange for America's card room money, do not send it to Brian Wojtek. In fact, do not send it to anyone who isn't familiar to you because it may be Brian Wojtek in disguise. He's at it again. He's scamming people again. Someone just got scammed today. I will tell you about what happened, and I will tell you what to do if you are a victim of Brian Wojtek. Because I'm hoping in 2020, Brian Wojtek sees the inside of a prison cell. That's where he belongs for what he's been doing. And maybe it will happen because he keeps doing this over and over. And eventually, the hammer will come down if there are enough victims who come forward to law enforcement. And uh, I will give you advice on what to do if you are one of those victims. Unfortunately, there's not much I can do from that standpoint, because he hasn't victimized me. So if I go to the police, they will send me away, saying you were not victimized, so stay out of it. A player at the Golden Nugget Atlantic City claims that he has a negative comp balance. (laughs) Think about that. Think about you go check your comps, and it's not just zero, it's negative. This actually happened according to a poster on VegasCasinoTalk.com, which is a sister site to Poker Fraud Alert. I run that, too. I will tell you about the negative comp balance and if there's anything he could do about it. Okay, so since 
we don't have that many long topics. We have a lot of short topics this week. I figured I'd do some slot hustling topics. Slot hustling is when you go around a casino and you try to find positive expectation slot machines. Yes, those exist. Slot machines which are in a temporary state where it's actually more likely that you will win money than lose money. Where actually it's uh, the odds are in your favor, basically, for a short time. So I will tell you about three slots which sometimes enter a positive expectation mode. In fact, they frequently do. I will tell you how to spot this. It's very easy. It's very simple. I'll explain how to do it. And you can try it yourself next time you're in your favorite casino. These are three very popular slots. that, And it's easy to find these opportunities. And it's not hard to do at all. So I'm going to give you a slot hustling 101 lesson. And then I will talk about two casinos where you should not do this because the Pepper Mill and Atlantis in Reno are allegedly kicking out people who are hustling slots. And we'll talk about that as well. A ridiculous PLO8 hand went down in Bobby's room, which is the high stakes room in the Bellagio. This was crazy because they ran it twice. Running it twice means where two people get it all in and not all the cards are dealt out yet on the board. And they agree to basically split the hand into two or more parts to where they deal out a different river or turn in river each time. And you know, depending on what's left to be dealt and split the pot accordingly. So this lowers variance. So a, a good example would be, let's say you have a set against someone with a flush draw and you get it all in rather than have to worry about the river where one person will win 100% of the pot and the other one wins zero. Uh, you may agree to run it twice. So where maybe one of the times the flush will hit, maybe the time, one of the times it won't and you'll split the pot 50, 50 in that case, or maybe both times the flush will hit and that person will win the whole thing. Both times it won't hit the other person will hit the whole thing. That's a good example of running it twice. So anyway, it was run twice. And a two-outer hit each time. <laughs> that's that's pretty bad luck. Two-outer. That's so sick. Twice in a high-stakes game. This wasn't like a little 50-cent-a-dollar game. This was a high-stakes game in Bobby's room. They ran it twice, and a two-outer hit both times. I'll tell you about that crazy hand. The Galfon Challenge is not too different from the Durr Challenge many years ago, where Phil Galfon is taking all comers to play him heads up. He's trying to do this to promote his site, which has been a fail site. I don't think it's going to really work, but nevertheless, there are people taking him up on it, and there's betting odds on those who are taking him up on it. I'll tell you about the various people who have agreed to play Phil Galfon and one who agreed and backed out of it, which when you hear who it is, you won't be too surprised. A listener question was messaged to me a few days ago, and I thought it was interesting enough to discuss out here. If you're trying to earn tier credits at Caesars or anywhere else, anywhere where you're trying to earn a status at the club, at the players' club, at the casino, and which which is the better game to do? Should you play the better odds video poker game, but where you get a tier credit after every $20 wagered, or the worst game at $10 per tier credit? So one, you're earning tiers faster, the other... The game is better, but it takes twice as long to earn tiers. Which is the better option? Of course, it depends on what the exact odds are of each game. But I'm going to give you a specific scenario and then give you an answer that might surprise you. 
Vegas casinos are now overrun with triple zero roulette games. I've said how they're at Venetian. In fact, Venetian has put in a triple zero video roulette game, which is even more offensive. What I didn't know until this week was that most major casinos in Vegas now have a triple zero roulette. I'll tell you which ones have it and, again, why you should avoid them. Macau casinos are still very profitable but are rapidly declining in revenue. I'll tell you how much they are declining and why. Louisiana casinos, all except Harris New Orleans, are required to be riverboat casinos. But due to a change in the law, some are finally starting to move off of the river. So the first one of those is, and I will tell you which casino it is, and why this is happening. Finally, another state has legalized sports betting. New, New, not New Jersey. New Jersey already has it. New Hampshire is the latest state to legalize sports betting. That's our agenda tonight. I have a feeling by the time we get to that last topic about New Hampshire, I don't think Trader Ruski will be conscious, but for as long as he can remain here, we will do it. So I want to go into right away the trip I took, and I want to tell you relevant things that You'll find either uh, entertaining or informative. I'm not someone who just tells you about my trip with boring trip stories that are interesting to me, but not to the rest of you. So this is what happened. I've been going to Vegas for New Year's for most of the last uh, like 10 years or more. I've been, in fact, more than that because I lived in Vegas too. So I was in Vegas for New Year's for most of the past, uh, like, 16 New Year's. There were a few exceptions. But for the most part, that's where I was for New Year's. Uh, Last year, I went to Vegas for the 2019 New Year, but I didn't stay at Caesars Palace for the first time in a long time because I didn't have a comp there. And if you don't have a comp there on New Year's, it's very, very expensive. When I did have a comp there, I got a very nice room, not a suite, but it was a nice room in the Augustus Tower with a great view of the Strip, a great view of the fireworks, a lovely place to spend your New Year's as you watch the clock turn to midnight and the fireworks go off from several different directions, and it's a very, very beautiful view over the fountains and the Strip and the fireworks going over all that, and I send people pictures of it every year. They were very impressed and jealous of me, and I felt so good. But I didn't feel so good in 2019 when I was unable to get a comp in any way to stay there anymore. And being a cheap Jew, I was not going to spend the money, of course. I especially hate spending money to stay in Vegas because uh, I'm so used to not doing that. But I did have a way to get a comp at the Golden Nugget. So we stayed at the Golden Nugget, and my girlfriend really hated the Golden Nugget for various reasons. I know, Trader Ruski, you're a big Golden Nugget guy, but my, my girlfriend was the opposite of that. She really didn't like the Golden Nugget. And the whole trip, it just wasn't as good as previous years. The weather sucked. It was cold and windy. Uh, we, we couldn't see the fireworks from our hotel room, so we had to go to like the roof of the parking garage to watch, and it was cold out there. It's just The whole thing wasn't a great trip. We were actually going to go to Mount Charleston, as we typically do every year once, and we couldn't do that because it was actually zero degrees there. It was actually zero degrees at Mount Charleston, so we didn't go. So a lot of the stuff we wanted to do, we couldn't do, or it wasn't as good as previous years. So as a result, my girlfriend was very anti-Vegas for New Year's this year, 
even if we were not to go to the Nuggets. She said she's kind of done with Vegas. Not permanently, but at least for New Year's. It was very unexciting for her to do. So I decided that we would do something different. And I was thinking, okay, what? And I thought of maybe go to Lake Tahoe. Now, I had never been to Lake Tahoe for New Year's. I had been in, I've been to Lake Tahoe many times. Not all that many times as an adult. I used to go there a lot as a kid with my family. I've been, the, I've been there a handful of times in the winter as an adult to ski. I've been there a handful of times in the summer to do summer type stuff. But I had never been there for New Year's. So I, I thought to myself, okay, that'd be kind of cool. Go to Lake Tahoe and we can watch the fireworks for New Year's over the lake. That'll look pretty cool. And maybe I can get a comp there because my play there was actually fairly good in my history going there. It seems when I do go, I actually play because the machines there have good odds. So I I thought, okay, let's see if I can get a comp to Lake Tahoe. And I actually did. I actually managed to get a comp. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure if I got the comp on my own merits because a listener of this show, none of you guys know him. And he's not a forum poster, but a listener to this show who I got to know over time just from talking back and forth, uh, and we became friends, uh, he had a very good relationship with a host there, and he plays a lot there. So I contacted his host who got me a comp room. Again, I don't know if this was kind of a favor to him or if this comp room was because of my previous play or both, but whatever it was, I got a comp room. I wasn't going to question it, which for New Year's is always a good thing to have, as you might imagine. So the I, I had a trip to Tahoe planned from December 29th to January 2nd. Now, December 28th, I also stopped in Mammoth for one night just to break up the drive because uh, it's a very long drive from Southern California to Tahoe. In fact, Vegas to Tahoe is also a very long drive, just not an easy place to drive to. Even flying there isn't easy because you have to fly into Reno and then take like an hour drive or bus ride to Reno. Getting to Tahoe is kind of a pain in the ass if you're in Southern California or Southern Nevada, which is why I don't go all that often. Well, the first thing I found about New Year's in Tahoe that wasn't desirable was that they do the fireworks, but they do the fireworks, number one, not over the lake, and number two, not at midnight. They do it at 9 p.m. And I said, what? 9 p.m.? Is are, are we in New York? And they were actually promoting it. Like, we're doing the fireworks just in time for the ball dropping over Times Square. I'm like, well, yeah, but with that logic, you could do it at, like, 5 a.m. as the ball's dropping over Sydney. <laughs> I mean, who cares when it's dropping over Times Square? We're not in New York. We're not on the East Coast. 9 p.m. is a stupid time to do the fireworks. But nevertheless, they did the fireworks at 9 p.m. I believe it's because of some local ordinance that prohibits the fireworks being done at midnight. So they chose 9 p.m. Maybe that was as late as they could do it. I don't know the Lake Tahoe ordinances, but that's what they did. (laughs) I would think maybe they could do it in one of two parts because some of you might might not know this, but Lake Tahoe is actually separated into two states. There's what's called South Lake Tahoe, which is in California, And then steps away from South Lake Tahoe is what's called State Line, Nevada. 
And that has all the casinos. That's how there's a Harris there and Mont Blue and all the other casinos. They couldn't be in California. So they are in Nevada, just steps away from the California border. So the Nevada side is called State Line. It was once called North Lake Tahoe, but now it's called State Line. And South Lake Tahoe, and that's actually where more people live, is the California side. The fireworks were shot off on the California side, and it presumably was a South Lake Tahoe ordinance that said they couldn't do it at midnight. But does state line have the same ordinance? Why not do it? Why not do it in state line? I don't understand this. There's two different states, two different cities involved. You think one of the two would have better laws about this? And most other cities don't have that ordinance for New Year's. They suspend the ordinance, knowing that most of the public wants to see fireworks at midnight on New Year's. Most of the public is not sleeping at midnight on New Year's, but they had it at 9 p.m. So that was kind of disappointing. Yeah, but people there are skiing all day. I mean, don't you think? I mean, they're probably spent by midnight. They could be that, but still, I mean, I, I have to. I have to think it's because of some ordinance. It's just weird to do it at nine. Like, why? It's just. It's just strange. I don't understand the nine p.m. New Year's fireworks because what? What are you celebrating? Yay, New Year's in three hours from now. Yay, New Year's if you're in New York right now. Like, what are you even celebrating at nine p.m.? And drop is it is it heaven it's heavenly right where you can where you can ski right across the state line too is it heavenly or yes is it yeah he- heavenly, it's heavenly okay. yes heavenly Tahoe once known as Heavenly Valley which is actually where I used to ski in the mid eighties they are very close to Harris and Harvey's and you can actually very easily walk there like very very easily walk there and there's a gondola right there which takes you up the mountain and then drops you kind of mid-mountain in a ski area. So that's convenient. So you can ski right from Harris. You can't ski up to Harris, but you can walk your skis over to the gondola, take it up, and never have to worry about driving or taking buses. And in the mid-'80s, they didn't have that. I had to take buses. So that's a nice thing. But I did not ski, which which I'll get into shortly. Uh, there is multi-state, multi-state skiing at Heavenly, where you can actually cross the border at the ski resort. It's very easy. You go to the top of the mountain and you can actually cross over from the California side to the Nevada side. And there's actually a base on the California side and the Nevada side. So you could even drive up to either one and start there. I think that's what uh, Trader Risky is referring to. Well, my plan for this trip, there were, there were multi-things, a number of things that I was planning to do there. Because you always have to think when you bring your family there, what are we going to do? You can't just think, oh, I'm going to gamble because the, the rest of the family has to be thought of. So I thought about, okay, first of all, Benjamin, he's never skied before. And I asked him if he had a desire to learn to ski. And he said, yes. And I also uh, thought I might ski myself. Though the snow is not always that great, especially in Tahoe at this time of year. Sometimes you have to wait till January, February before the snow gets very good or there's enough of it. And... I also planned to play some video poker and re-earn my diamond, which was going to be expiring on January 31st, and also planned to do some sledding and snow play for the kids, and also just general socializing with the friend I made from Poker Fraud Alert Radio that was going to be there too, and I was going to meet up with his family for the first time. I, I've met him before. I met him during the Last World Series. But I hadn't met his family before, and in fact, he has a, a daughter not too far from Benjamin's age, and they were going to play together. So that, that was the plan. 
And the part of it that didn't work out was the skiing part of it. Now, I had taken private lessons to learn how to ski through the ski resort. You, know, you go to the ski resort, they give you they, – they rent skis for you, and the uh, private instructor teaches you how to ski for, I don't know, two hours or something. And I think I took like two of those lessons, and I learned how to ski well enough to where I could just learn the rest on my own, and I did. And that's how I learned to ski when I was about uh, eight years old. And that was in Big Bear, actually, I did this. Now, I realize – I was eight years old in 1980. We're talking about about 40 years, and a lot can change in 40 years. I know that. Prices change, situations change, the way things are done change. But I, I had not thought about ski lessons in a long time because I haven't had a need for them. But uh, now I did. And I thought, okay, I know at these ski schools, like these group lessons that they do, you don't learn that much because there just isn't much time for the instructor to spend with each student. Most of the time the students are standing around or, and, the, and each student goes down the hill and they're waiting in a line. You just you don't get much done. And I said, I, I'd really prefer Benjamin to have a private lesson so he could learn a lot quicker. In fact, I was afraid if he took a group lesson that he'd barely do it and not be good at it and say, I don't want to do this again. So Trader Ruski, how much would you guess, and this is through the ski resort, a private lesson would be, let's say for, I'll tell you, they have a full day one, which is like seven hours, and a half, what they call a half day, which is three hours. Let's focus and it on comes that. with the pass, or do you have to buy the pass separately? Well, that's that's a good question. Let's just say the whole thing out the door, and I'll explain all of this when we're done. So just so including the pass. And the equipment, including the pass and the equipment. Oh, and the equipment. And the okay, equipment. Well, for, that's got to be for, for, for th- 80 bucks right there. So for three hours, let's say a three-hour lesson for the pass or the equipment and the ability to take and, and, the le- and the private lesson. How much do you think that would cost me? I mean, I gotta say a minimum two hundred. See, that's kind of what I was thinking. A little bit more, but around that's what I was thinking. Uh, it ended up being something like one hundred billion dollars. It might it might as well have been that because it's around like a thousand dollars. What? Yes. From so one person? Get let, out of here. Let me explain. Yes. Okay. So you can to get a private instructor for three hours, which is the minimum, by the way. There's no one hour or two hour lesson. Three hour minimum. And it's $640 right there. Plus you have to rent, you have to get a pass. Plus you have to rent the equipment. Actually, it's not a thousand. It's, it's a little less than a thousand. I was exaggerating, but it, it's, it's easily uh, 800. But still, two hundred bucks. What is that? Two hundred and thirteen dollars an hour. Plus, plus you have to get a pass and and rent the equipment. Right, which, and plus the pass and the other thing. Which but which still, wasn't the I case. Mean, come on, when I that's learned not... right when I learned to ski forty years ago, the the equipment came with the lesson, and so did the pass. You, when I say the pass, I mean you couldn't go ski on your own after that. But if you were just there to take the lesson, then they didn't make you get a pass. So here they make you get a pass, even for a private lesson. And if you need equipment, you have to rent that with no deal or discount. And then you have to pay six four hundred. You got top of that. It's crazy. So I said no. I just said no. And I looked up other resorts, and a lot of them are cheaper. Even Mammoth, which is expensive, they charge six ninety for the lesson, but at least they give you the free equipment and the free pass. So it comes out cheaper. Still way too expensive. I'm not paying six ninety, but I, there's other smaller resorts 
that provided you're not going up during a holiday period. They have specials like learn to ski specials where they give you all the stuff and then the lessons a lot cheaper. So I'm just going to do it that way. I'm just going to go during well, non-holiday time and. Right, exactly. Because it probably is just what time of year it is. Well, sort of. Uh, this, but the, yeah, this but is that the instructor better have a minimum silver medal. <laughs> right, and this is this is the min- this is the price all the time. This wasn't just like the Christmas time, uh, Christmas New Year's time price. This was the, if I go uh, on you know, February first on a Thursday or something, it's it's still the same price. It's uh, wow, so, that's crazy. Yeah, it wasn't even about jacking up the price for the holidays. Now, some other resorts. Don't have their specials on the holidays. That's that's the difference. But for, for for Heavenly, it's the same price all the time. So that was insane. So I said, forget it. And as far as me skiing, number one, I didn't want to abandon the family and go ski. And number two, the snow wasn't that good, and it was super crowded, as, which I knew that wasn't a shock to me. I knew it would be super crowded during the uh, between Christmas and New Year's period. So I said, forget the whole thing. Let's just concentrate on the snow play. Well, that also was an issue because. Think of all these families up in Tahoe. A lot of them came from the Bay Area. A lot of came from Sacramento, which is fairly close. Like Sacramento, you can drive to Tahoe in about an hour 15. So that's pretty easy. So all these families there, some came from Reno, also not too far. So, okay, you have all these families there, got kids. What do the kids want to do? Well, if they're not skiing, they want to play in the snow and they want to go sledding. And people look, well, where can we do this? So you have a number of options, all of which I think are flawed. You can go to the free snowplay areas, which are basically just hills that are good for that, that got to be recognized over time. And people just, and they have a parking lot. Sometimes the state of Nevada will build a parking lot there, whatever. The free ones are pretty well known. So I tried to go to one of those. It was so crowded. Ben went down a few times and I just said, no, forget it. Even he was tired of it. You constantly run into people. When you're walking with a sled, you have to constantly look around that no one's going to run into you because people are barreling down the hill on their sled, including like adults, and they can slam into you. And no matter where you are in the hill, you're not safe. You're going to constantly be on guard for that. It just it was so jammed, and the snow wasn't even that good in that spot because it was kind of a lower elevation. And every spot that I knew of everyone else knew of and was jammed. Then there are some pay spots where you can, like, like snow play areas that are commercially maintained, but those are also very crowded. So you've got the same issues. It's not quite as chaotic, but you've still got to stand in line, and it, it's, uh, uh, they, then you go down a, a, a hill that they specially made for this, and, and then they'll give you a sled, but I already had that with me. Actually, I want another listener, strangely enough, another listener left us a sled, or actually two sleds. Another lessoner who I got to know, actually, I guess they couldn't bring home the sleds that they brought, so they just left them for me with the bellman and some other goodies that left for us. So I appreciated that as well. So we had our sleds. We didn't even need to rent sleds. So I kind of felt like I'm not getting my money's worth there if I go to one of these pay places where they give you a sled when they already have one. It's just none of this appealed to me. It just seemed like and we, we tried the free one. It, it, ben didn't enjoy it, and I saw why. And I thought, there's got to be something better. Like, the Lake Tahoe area is actually pretty big. The lake's actually much bigger than you'd picture. And, yes, not all of it's at a very high elevation, but it's it's at a minimum elevation of, like, 6,200. And then surrounding the lake are some more mountainous areas that are higher. 
So I figured, okay, there's going to be something I can find that people just don't know about. It's kind of an off-the-beaten-path snowplay area, maybe even something good for sledding. Well, what I found from driving around is that the sledding thing is probably going to be out because to have a good sledding area, you need a few pieces of criteria which are kind of not easy to just find sitting there. Number one, it has to be on a hill. Number two, there can't be trees or it's dangerous. Number three, it can't be right by the road or it's dangerous. <laughs> so number four, there has to be enough snow. So like like all this stuff together, uh, to find something that's safe and enough of a hill but not too much of a hill and having enough snow and not being crowded already, like I, I found that that's going to be very difficult to locate. So I started thinking, okay, well, let's at least search for a good snow play area. So finally I found one. Have you heard of Incline Village? Yeah. Yeah, Incline Village is uh, the, it's in the northeast area of Lake Tahoe. If you go to the very northeast corner of Lake Tahoe in Nevada, then there's a small town called Incline Village. A lot of people have vacation homes there. And above Incline Village, physically above it, I mean like a, not only north but also in the mountains above it, which makes it a little bit higher in the snow better, I found a secret location where nobody played in the snow, but it was very, very good for our purposes, except except for the fact that the sledding isn't that good there because there's a lot of trees around, so you've got to be kind of careful. But the snow was deep, it was fluffy, it wasn't like slushy at all, or nobody had been in, there were no tracks, at least not since it last snowed. Uh, the It was so deep that when you, when you'd walk in it, you're, you would sink in a few feet. So it was that unmolested and untouched, you'd be sinking in as you'd walk there. And I, I think I'll post a picture of it. A, a very good snowman was built that actually kind of looked like a person. It's kind of a creepy-looking snowman, but it was also cool. And uh, so, like a, a lot of good snow play there was had, so much that we went back a second day. And, and Benjamin really enjoyed that. He even built his own little sledding area. He made like his own little sledding track by digging into the snow. And kind of like I made a stopper at the end where you end, up, you end up in a little snow ditch so you don't end up on the road. And, and the perfect thing is that it's on the other side of the parking area on the highway and people are afraid to cross there because it's a little bit dangerous to cross. Not that dangerous if you watch what you're doing, but it's nothing that's just obvious you just park there and walk up. So like nobody ever played there. Can't say ever, but like nobody in general plays there. If you want to know the exact location, you can text me at 775-372-8355 if you're interested in going there. And I will tell you exactly how to find this secret snowplay area, which I found to be by far the best option. Because let me tell you guys something about this and many other things like this, even not having to do with snowplay. The experience one will have on vacation often is influenced by how you do it. And often is influenced by how you avoid crowds. And let me tell you, when you vacation, crowds suck. They suck. They really, really detract from the experience. And you may be saying, oh, well, I'm not as particular as you. I don't care so much. You know, As long as we're having fun, I don't care if there's other people. No, 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 no. Trust me. The crowds really detract from it. No matter what the experience is. It's not as relaxing it's not as fun. 
your options are not as numerous because other people are in the way in whatever way it's happening. It's just it's just not as good. And if you vacation the way everyone else vacations, if you do exactly what everyone else is doing, if you don't put the research in or at least make an effort like I did, I didn't I tried to do research but that didn't get me anywhere, but at least make an effort to go off the beaten path and do something different than what everyone else is doing, you're not going to have that good of a time. And I know everybody has their own tastes, but I always advise people in anything you do, especially leisure activities, especially vacations, to take a moment to think about what is the smartest way to do this? What is the way I could do this to where it might be different from what the crowd is doing, especially if you're going at a crowded time? And then do it that way. Don't just do what everyone else does. Don't just do what the Internet suggests you do. Because you'll have a crappy experience. It'll be much, much better if you find your own way. You just put a little bit of effort to find a better way. And I try to do that every time when I vacation. I'm not saying I don't go to crowded things. Sometimes you can't help it. But I try to minimize that. And I try when I do have to go to crowded things, I try to still think about what's the smartest way to do this. What's the most efficient way to do this? What's the way to do this where... We have the most options, where we have the most freedom, we have the most flexibility, where we'll have the best time. Just blindly going on a tour or, blind, or blindly going on uh, to where everyone else is going or doing what everyone else is doing, often you will not have a very good time. I think about cruising. I don't want to get into too much of a tangent, but I, I think about cruising. I have people coming to me saying, why do you take cruises? I took a cruise and it sucked. I hated it. I go, okay, well, there's some people who hate cruises, I understand, but... Can I ask you a few questions? Um, can you explain your cabin and how many people are in the cabin? Well, we got an inside cabin and we put my family of four in there, they tell me. And I go, well, why did you do that? Well, because they said it sleeps four. I go, well, that's awful. Why would you do that? Well, but because it's, it's expensive to get more than one cabin. I go, well, okay, but when did you get your cabin? Well, we got it a year in advance. Why? Well, because we always plan in advance. Well, did you know that uh, it's most expensive if you get it a year in advance? Well, no, I didn't. Well, did you look into it? No, I didn't. Okay, let's move on. Uh, what did you think of the food? I thought the food was mediocre, they tell me. And, and, and it was kind of felt like being in a high school cafeteria. I say, did you try the specialty restaurants? No, I didn't want to pay the $20 extra per person, they tell me. Why not? Well, because why, why do that when you get dinner for free? I go, well, because the dinner for free sucks. The specialty restaurants are better. It's a much better experience. It's totally worth the extra money. Okay, then I say, well, what did you do with the ports? Well, we took some... We took some tours through the ship. Yes. Was it expensive? Yes. Did you have fun? Not really. And I go, well, that makes sense to me because the ship tours suck. You got to do your own thing. Or book your own private tours with locals there. You can even do it right off the ship without even planning it. Well, we didn't think of that. Like, it's a, like if you do it wrong, it's expensive. It's not fun. It's crowded. You don't have any flexibility. You're on someone else's schedule. And you got to think of these things before you take a vacation. And it's some effort. It kind of sucks to have to plan all this. It's easier to just go and just fly by the seat of your pants. But then you also won't have a very good experience. So I try to think about that when I vacation. And that's what, like the snow play thing was really bothering me. I, wa- I wanted to get a good spot. I wanted to get something that was not going to be crowded, where the snow was good. 
there were people wall to wall around us, people slamming into us on sleds constantly, and I, I found something. And I, I encourage you, when you are vacationing, to try to always find the best and smartest way to do things, not just the most common way of doing things. And often you can save a lot of money when you do things that way too. So anyway, how did you find that draft? Because that's not close. I mean, that's a good what forty-five minute drive, maybe half hour. It's about thirty-five minutes. Yeah, and and, and uh, I found it because because I just kept driving. I was like, no, this isn't. I just got to get driving, and, and eventually I ran into it, and I'm like, okay, good. Like this is. Uh, wow. Let's try. Let's try this. And I I I could have found nothing. If the, this one wasn't a result of planning. I tried. I tried so hard to research like kind of off the beaten path snowplay areas, but. No such thing exists on the internet. They, everything you'll see is going to be super crowded during times like New Year's. So you have to go to something that really is not published on the internet. And uh, you just—I I can't tell you how many times I've, I've taken vacations where I've just—I've done something which is not what everybody else does, and I'm so happy afterwards that that's the way I did it. And had I done another one, I won't go into the long story here, but uh, in between Banff and Jasper National Parks in Alberta, uh, there's a thing where you can actually take a, ve- a be- vehicle with like 15 foot wheels onto a glacier and walk on a glacier. And the big complaint about it is that they take about 400 people up there at once and put you in a small area of the glacier and it's just jammed and it's, it's not very pleasant. Well, looking into it further, I saw they had another option that after like, 5.30 p.m., they have a like a 50% more expensive option, not even like way more expensive, like 50% more expensive, where you go up in groups of maximum 20 people, and they give you a snack up there, like a gourmet snack, and you have a, a fairly good buffet at the end, none of which you have, you have with a big group during the rest of the day. And I said, well, why doesn't everybody do this? So I did that option. It was so much better. I saw pictures of the ones of the 400 people up there. It's like wall-to-wall people. We were up there with like 12 other people. So much nicer. It was like a high-end experience versus a low-end experience. Why? Because they, they were trying this for the first time that year. I don't even know if they're still doing this three years ago. But they were trying this as a, like an experimental thing for the first time that year. They didn't publicize it that well. But it was me like looking into it more deeply that I found this. And I can tell you there's a lot of people out there that will say, well... Screw the more expensive option. 50% more expensive, that's not worth it. I'll go with a cheaper one. Well, that's not good value. It's not It's not good value to get something that sucks for 50% cheaper. If something's much, much better, something's several times better, and it's 50% more expensive, provided you're not like really, really financially stressed, you should do the one that's more expensive if it's like several times better, which this was. And that's a mistake people often make, too, where they just look for the cheapest not the best value. I see mistakes on the other end. People always want the, the most expensive, highest-end option and not the best value. I try to look for something that's good, but also very good value. Anyway, en- enough lecturing about vacations, but that's... Uh, th- you going to say something, Trader Rizky? I was just going to... Oh, okay, well, I thought you moved on, but I was just going to say full day... Six-hour lesson with rental and lift tickets and VIP access to the you cut in line on the on the um, the ski lifts. Three ten at Mammoth. Um, I saw six ninety. Maybe that was the holiday price. 
No, in Mammoth, though. No, Mammoth. Mammoth. I, no, I looked at Mammoth. I saw six ninety. Oh, you did? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, maybe it was the holiday price because now I put it in for like going next well, on shit. Friday the tenth. Maybe these were holiday prices. Maybe they tricked me. Okay. Well, that's interesting yeah. to know. That is interesting to know. I will look at that again. I for some reason I thought this was regular pricing, but maybe they fooled me, or maybe I misread something. Okay. Well, I knew those were the prices though when I was there. That's for sure. So let me let me get back to uh, the let me finish this topic about the video poker. Uh, there's been some talk. I know I mentioned it last week that I got reliable information that the good video poker is there. Well, I saw it with my own eyes, and I went through the machines. Yes, the nine six jacks are better, which is called full pay video poker, with perfect play, ninety nine point fifty four percent return. But that's a little misleading because if you don't get a royal, it's like two percent less than that. But that's the best you're going to find at Caesar's Properties, and it is ten dollars per tier. And there are a number of different machines in the high limit room that are like that. There's a, a three play, a five play, a fifty play. There's a spin poker, which is just kind of a gimmick. It's still just regular jacks are better. So you can find these if you go to VegasCasinoTalk.com and go to the Californian Western Casinos forum. You'll find a list of them of where these machines can be located in the high limit room. And that is where I would suggest you earn your diamond or seven star, provided it's not too hard to get there, and provided you're in the West. In the East, uh, there are some other options, but in the West, that that is the option. Everything else is not very good to earn tier credits. So I did. I re-earned my diamond there. I lost about uh, seven hundred bucks when doing so, which actually was good compared to how I started. I lost fifteen hundred dollars like right off the bat, super fast, and I was very upset. The, I'm like, wow, if I've lost this much this fast, uh, imagine how this is going to end. But I actually won from there, so I ended up uh, losing seven hundred in earning diamond in a day. That was I wagered. Uh, I ran through fifty thousand dollars in coin in. That got me five thousand tier credits plus the ten thousand bonus tiers. That got me to diamond. How was a $700 loss? Actually, not bad. Uh, it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. I- ignoring how I started, just overall. Since I did not get a Royal, I just I, I can't ever get a Royal except for that one trip to Harris Rincon. I'm serious. Like, I've never gotten a Royal any other time. So aside from, it says I didn't get a Royal. So if you multiply the non-Royal return rate, which is like uh, 97.55%, of uh, 50000 on, on average, you'd actually lose more than that. You'd actually lose uh, about uh, $1,225. So I lost a little bit less than that at 700 That's uh, the non-royal return rate with exactly average luck would be losing $1,225. I lost about 700 but I'm going to have diamond for the next two years. And the resort fees alone, which you save by being diamond, are worth far more than 700 with just the World Series alone when I stay there. So that's uh, for sure that was worth it to me. And uh, that's where I would advise you run your play to become Diamond if you're in the West and you can get there. And you know, there's things you can do there. You can play in the snow. You can ski. You, if you're in the summer, there's summertime activities like hiking. So there's, you can go on the lake. So I would recommend earning your tier credits there if you're going for Diamond or for uh, Seven Stars in the West. They do still have the good machines. Now, I will warn you. They do not give much as far as offers. So don't expect to run all that coin in and get these great offers. You're not. You're going to get crap offers. Because they know that people play those machines because they're the best return. 
and they know that those type of players are not really ones that they want that badly. So just keep that in mind, but those machines are still there. You can go to VegasCasinoTalk.com, the California and Western Casinos Forum. You'll see the thread about it, and you can see where those machines are located. I described them for you right there. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. And you can call in. You can text me. Someone texted me, hi. I'm I'm afraid to text them back, but I'm going to say back, hi. (laughs) Sometimes these 702 numbers texting me, which this is, sometimes those are troll texters. So I'm, I'm afraid sometimes to interact with these random 702 numbers that text me. Someone texted from the 604, Ricky Gervais needs to host the American Poker Awards. And uh, from the 507, for $1,000, I want a massage and happy ending also. Jeez. Yeah, I agree. I want to talk about the independent investigator who is trying to find out what really happened at the Stones Casino with the Mike Postle cheating. And how not only is he... Not very independent. He's less independent now than he was before, which I didn't think was even possible. So let me remind you guys, Mike Postle cheated on stream at the Stones Live Casino in Sacramento. And it was a very big scandal at the end of 2019. And it was blown out of the water by Veronica, who was one of the commentators on there for a while. Veronica Brill is her name. We had her on the show. And then Chicago Joey put in a lot of work to analyze all these hands that Mike Postle played. And fortunately, he had access to all that because they posted it right on their website. It was very easy for people to get these old streams and analyze them very closely. And it was very, very clear that Mike Postle was cheating in some way and had access in some way to the whole cards of everybody else. He was live super using. It's a crazy scandal. The, the poker blew up about this. Everybody came together. It was a beautiful moment that everybody in poker came together to as one to criticize Stones over this, to get to the bottom of this. And Joey Ingram put in incredible work on this, and uh, others did so as well. But what was the consequence? Well, they stopped their live stream. They actually continued having the live stream for a short time, but they got trolled so badly in their own chat room they gave up on it. They realized that that was just rubbing salt in the wound. So they ended the live stream a few months ago. And they promised that they would have an independent investigation to figure out what happened. Now... The funny thing is they claimed at the time that they already had an independent investigation. When this was first brought up by Veronica, they said, oh, Veronica doesn't know what she's talking about. We, we did an independent investigation, and uh, we figured out that it's very secure, nothing to see here. So now somehow that investigation doesn't matter anymore. Now they're doing a real independent investigation, which, strangely enough, is also not a real independent investigation. <laughs> The person who is doing the independent investigation is Michael Lipman, who is an attorney. And on the surface, it seemed like he might be a decent choice. Michael Lipman seems to have the expertise to do so. He has a good reputation. And he is an attorney in California. The problem is that Michael Lipman has 
represented the owners of Stone's Casino in the past. So that doesn't make any sense. If you want to get to the bottom of what really happened, if you really want independent investigators to come in and really find truthfully what was going on, you don't hire an attorney that you've worked with before to do this investigation because he's not independent. I'm not saying this attorney is a bad guy or a scammer or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's not independent if it's someone that you've had a previous business relationship with, if it's someone who knows that you may hire him again in the future if this investigation goes in your favor. Again, I'm not accusing Michael Lippman of anything. I'm saying he's not independent, much like I say my mom is an honest woman, but she would not be a good choice to be an independent investigator of me. If I did something wrong, or you thought I did, if my mom volunteered to investigate me, I don't think you'd be very happy about that. I don't think you'd feel she was independent or that she could do a completely fair and impartial investigation. So an attorney that has had a business relationship with the owners of Stone's Casino, one who has been their representation in the past, is not a proper independent investigator. A proper independent investigator would be a completely new attorney who is hired and is hired by someone that uh, are not the owners of the uh, casino. That's the other problem is that if the owners are paying for it, then there's an incentive for that attorney to produce things that are favorable to them. A real independent investigation would be, for example, I'm not going to do it, if I hired an attorney to lead an investigation of this and they were to cooperate. That would be a good independent investigation because I'm not looking to find incriminating information. I just want the truth. And if I were to direct an attorney to do this, I would say, go up there and find the truth. And they said they'll cooperate. That would be a good independent investigation, not an attorney that they hire and definitely not one they've hired in the past. Anyway, he is their, quote, independent investigator. And on October 11th, they tweeted, attorney Michael Lippman said, we believe that the definitive evidence will be found by forensically examining the computer systems used to broadcast the stream. We have retained forensic specialist uh, Strauss Friedberg to perform analytics. And as I mentioned back then, the problem with this is that they can do this investigation and not be looking for the right things intentionally. They can hire a computer forensics firm to say, okay, look through our setup and see if you find any way it can be hacked. And they may come back, no, it's secure. Why? Because it wasn't hacked, because it was done through an insider. <laughs> Just because it wasn't hacked doesn't mean that there wasn't a breach. And they haven't explained what these forensic specialists are going to be looking for or if they're going to be looking for it possibly being an inside job or if they're going to interview anyone who's been suspected. And there's been several names thrown around that of people who work there that are suspected conspirators, along with uh, Mike Postle, who definitely did the cheating. And uh, Justin, Justin Corrade is the tournament director and the director of these live streams who either knew or should have known what was going on. But besides these two, there were others who should be looked into and interviewed. They've given no indication that's going to happen. They have not described anything they're going to do other than what I just read you. We also haven't heard anything. October 11th is now almost three months ago. We have not heard anything. How long does this investigation take? If I were directing this investigation and had the full cooperation of Stones, this could be done within two weeks. Or less. 
not three months, and there's been no progress reported, well, this obviously is a sham. They're not going to hire their own attorney to investigate them to come back with the conclusion that they screwed up, especially with an active lawsuit against them, an active civil lawsuit that was filed uh, by uh, Mac Verstandig, and uh, it's a class action suit with many who were cheated on that stream. There's no chance with that currently active, it's like a $30 million lawsuit, $20 million lawsuit, whatever it is, uh, with that going on, like they're really going to come back and say, yeah, you know, all these allegations are right. Mike Postle cheated. It was an inside job. And uh, yeah, you guys got all ripped off for over a year. Sorry about that. That's our conclusion. Justin was at fault. Other people who operated the stream from a technical standpoint were at fault. Uh, it was a big conspiracy to help Mike Postle cheat and rip everyone off for all this time. Sorry, but we uncovered it all. How do you think that would look in court? with Mac Verstandig's lawsuit against them. They would get clobbered. So they're believe me, they're not going to come back with self-incriminating information. Is Michael Lippman going to lie for them? No, but he doesn't have to. Uh, there's a lot of things attorneys can do where they just don't look for the wrong things, shall I say. You don't have to lie if you aren't looking in the right places and find nothing. So something like that. But this is all old news. We, we had this same discussion out here back in October. But there is a new development that I want to tell you about involving, quote, independent investigator Michael Lippman. So for a while at least, up until very recently, they were still maintaining this ridiculous claim that Michael Lippman was an independent investigator. Well, it looks like they've just given up on that. They're not saying he's not independent, but there has recently been a legal filing and the firm representing Stones is the, uh, Dwayne Morris LLP. Why does that matter? Dwayne Morris LLP's lawyers include Michael L. Lippman. <laughs> and he, in fact, he's the one who signed this uh, filing. So in the latest filing that was on behalf of Stones, Michael Lippman signed it. And he's listed as attorney for defendant King's Casino LLC. King's Casino LLC is who owns Stones. It says uh, in this legal document, by entering this into the stipulation, defendants do not enter a general appearance and do not waive all rights, legal challenges, and arguments, including any jurisdictional or other defenses that may be raised, blah, 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 blah. Uh, accordingly, the parties jointly request this court amend the initial pretrial scheduling in order to postpone Rule 26F, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so stipulated December 9th, dated December 9th, 2019, by Michael Lippman with his signature on there. <laughs> so he's actually their attorney now in this matter where they're being sued in the Mac Verstandig case. So uh, I think the investigation's out the window. I don't even know if it's going to even continue. 
they announced this investigation before they were actually sued. They may have decided they're not even going to do it because they don't want to self-incriminate. They've also, they also may have decided they're just not going to do it because it's going to be torn apart. See, a lot of times when businesses or sometimes even people are accused of wrongdoing, they underestimate the accusers and they underestimate the people following the matter on social media and they think just stupid generic responses are going to satisfy them. That's totally what Stones did here. Stones said, oh, we already did an investigation. We have a very secure stream. Well, okay. Okay, no problem. Never mind, Stones. Forget everything Veronica said. Forget all the videos we have of Mike Possible cheating. You said you found it was secure. I guess you're right. Like They really thought people were going to just walk away. And then when it heated up, they're talking about these uh, independent investigations. And, and again, they, they didn't think people are going to quickly figure out that Michael Lippin had represented them in the past. But they really thought that if they, quote, do an independent investigation, it'll satisfy the poker community. Because this is sometimes how people respond when they underestimate the people who are accusing them of wrongdoing. They think, okay, well, we'll, we'll just go through the motions, give a, a typical corporate response that'll satisfy everybody. Th- this will show them, this will teach them, this will fool them. Then they realize that the people who caught this whole thing in the first place are intelligent and sophisticated, and they're not going to be fooled by lame tactics like this and tricks like this that are super easy to see through. And they realize that they're also not dealing with a giant general public. They're dealing with a relatively small and close-knit community that is poker where the word travels very fast. If, if this was a response they put out to like millions of people, I'd understand. But the, th- this is something where the people they're trying to impress with their responses are not going to buy it. So why even bother? They just make themselves look worse. So they may have given up on it. They may have given up on the independent investigation. They may have thought at one point, oh, yeah, I, I, we'll do an independent investigation. That was probably you – know, once they realized the extent of which uh, Joey Ingram went through the hands on the stream and the extent everyone's convinced about Apostles cheating and that it had to be an inside job in some way, that uh, any, quote, independent investigation is not going to convince anyone. Like if whatever they come up with that exonerates them here, I don't even think like – Five percent of the poker community will buy it. I'm not even kidding. Like, like of the people following this, I, I think ninety-five percent plus won't believe them. So why bother? So they they may have given up on that, and that's why they don't talk about it anymore. So that's why they have not mentioned it. They also may be hoping this goes away. They may have realized that time may heal this wound. They also may realize that they just may never have a live stream again. the The live stream was quickly gaining popularity. It was a great thing for them. But they ruined it, and they probably realized that they may never be trusted ever again. They were no live at the bike. They weren't a huge live stream, but they were an up-and-coming live stream. And they were starting to really get credibility. They started getting a lot of A-list players coming down there and playing on that stream. And now they're not going to get that anymore. Like, Who's ever going to go back and play at Stones? Who's ever going to trust that again? Who's going to trust them again? Not just the fact that they were cheating... But how they've handled this since since then. It's not like they admitted Postle cheated, uh, fired the perpetrators, made a statement clearing, clarifying everything that happened, making it right with people who got ripped off. They didn't do any of this. They've been covering up. 
So, so no matter what happens at the end here, no one is going to trust them again. Maybe a few idiot locals there who either are just too forgiving or somehow aren't aware of the extent of it, but they're not going to become an influential stream ever again. Their reputation has been ruined. And that's the way it's going to be, and I think they know that. So their tactic at this point may just be defend all lawsuits, try to get out of it as cheaply as possible, and then just hope everybody forgets as much as they do over time, and just never have the live stream again. Just give up on the live stream and go back to being a normal poker room. And from what I hear of people visiting, it's still busy there. It's still crowded. It's still a lot of people who like to play there. So maybe their core business wasn't hurt that much by this. They ruined something good that could have made them grow even bigger, but aside from that, maybe they've decided they'll just lose the live stream and move forward. Maybe they've given up on trying to impress the poker community. That would be my guess. But isn't it the court case, Druff? I mean, that I would think that would create pressure. There will be a court, right, but I think they want to win the court case and got to be done. Like, the, the thing is, like, who's this, what's going to change there? There's the regulars who come down there and play, or even the irregulars, just they have the regular core business of cash games and tournaments that I don't know how many people are staying away from that. I, th- I think they're still doing fairly well. They've stopped the live stream. And the court case, they want to win it, but like I, I think they've given up on the poker public as a whole, people like me, people like you, ever thinking highly of them ever again and ever wanting to watch or appear on their live stream ever again. But they can't get their license yanked or anything? They, I mean, they, they, that is so ridiculous. They, they can, but the California Gambling Control Commission is very weak and doesn't care. Then well, they, but but I'd imagine though, if they lost the case and had to pay a lot of money, that it was proven that there was cheating going on under their nose. Yes, it's possible. Right, it's possible if they if a civil case is won, that then the complaint could be brought to the California Gambling Control Commission and and a lot of pressure really placed to do something here. And that's probably again why they're going to put the resources into winning this court case for both reasons. And uh, and then hope they win, and hope it goes away. I, I'm very interested to see where this goes, the court case. And I I can't even predict where it's going to go. I can't. Uh, there's parts of me that believe that the players suing will win in some way, even through settlement. And there's part of me that believes it's going to flop. And I'm not I'm not sure really which way to go on it. It's, I can see it both ways, where this will work or where this will. It's not going to be a thirty million dollar victory, but it, I could see where there's a victory. I could also see where it fails. I could see either way. But what about criminal? No, it's not going to I mean, is, is there anything that where you can't do that? Yeah, there could be a criminal case. I just don't think there will be. I, I just don't think there's going to be interest in, in pursuing it. Because it would be interesting to hear, like, how many times a criminal case would follow a civil case. Because usually it's vice versa. Yeah, right. See, I just don't – I usually these criminal cases will only come at this point after this much time has passed if – there's, if it's high profile enough to where something has to be done or they look, or, or law enforcement looks really bad. But as, as long as there's not like massive mainstream media coverage of this, I don't think there's going to be a criminal case. I think Postle is going to get away f- from that standpoint. Uh, from the standpoint of his reputation, from the standpoint of being hated by everybody, from the standpoint of having his name out there forever as, as a big poker cheater, from the standpoint of being sued, 
these ways he won't get away with it, but from a criminal standpoint, I'd be very surprised if he's ever criminally prosecuted. I'm real. Yeah, it sucks. fucking scumbags. No, I mean, he deserves it. He, he deserves it, and Justin deserves it, and anyone else involved. I mean, th- this, is a, this is something where law enforcement should get involved. They should. What really should have happened here is law enforcement should have taken the lead here, and they should have questioned Possil. They should have questioned Justin Caritas. They should have questioned the other employees there and really put the hammer on them, really, really scared the people who might be accomplices and might be willing to roll over on them. Because you, you, you separate all these different people and question them. I mean, yes, they can ask for attorneys and everything, but you can say, hey, look, if you want to you go that mode, uh, if you, you want to uh, lawyer up here, then we're not going to make deals with you. But uh, uh, they, they, could, they could try. They could try to question as many people as they can and get someone to crack. And I, I bet some of the side characters in this, if there are any, would crack, and the whole thing could come crashing down. It doesn't look like they're going to do it. It's been several months now. It just doesn't look like it's going to happen. We never saw any indication that it would happen. So it's just, it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Once again, poker scammers are getting away with not being prosecuted by the law as they should. And it's it's, uh, something we see in our community over and over. We're going to talk later in the show about a much smaller scale scammer, but someone who's very prolific, Brian Wojtek. And I'm going to encourage people who are victims of his, I know some of whom listen to this show, to do what you can to make sure he does get prosecuted or investigated because it's up to you guys. I can't do it. I'm not a victim of his and I never will be, but it's, it's up to you guys to get this done. And uh, I, I really encourage those of you who were victimized by him or know people who were victimized to really try to get this done. And I'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. So that's the story right now. The main thing I just wanted to get out to you guys is that Michael Lippman is no longer an independent investigator. He's actually their attorney on record for this civil case. So don't expect this investigation to yield very much or anything. Since we were talking about Brian Wojtek, let's talk about Brian Wojtek. Brian Wojtek, the prolific ACR scammer, he has a very simple scam. He looks for people on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, he has a lot of different fake accounts on there. He pre-blocks me on his social media accounts so I can't see him because he knows I'm onto him. In fact, he did it before I was onto him. He he knew of me and he knew that he needs to block me first before doing this. It's actually kind of a compliment that scammers are pre-blocking me before scamming. I wish they wouldn't scam at all, but it is kind of entertaining that He's actually pre-blocking me before scamming, knowing that I'm going to be calling him out if I see it. But his scam is very simple. He scours social media, looks for people who are looking for America's card room money, and says, hey, send me money on Cash App, on PayPal, whatever, and I'll send you America's card room money. And then he just never sends it. And then he blocks them. Very simple scam. Sometimes he does it under his own name, as he just most recently did. Sometimes he will do it under phony names. Sometimes names of people he just makes makes up, from what I can see. So he's done this under a lot of different names, a lot of different emails, a lot of different screen names, a lot of different Twitter names. But it's the same scam over and over. He was one of the people who ripped off cancer patient Kevin Roster, also known as Kevin Rax, the guy who was dying of cancer, who was weeks away from passing away. Kevin Rax is no longer with us, but weeks before he died, 
Brian Wojtek ripped him off because Kevin wanted to play some poker on ACR and there was Brian Wojtek to pounce on him under one of his fake accounts. And he stole money through Cash App. Usually he steals relatively small amounts of money, and I think this might be intentional, so the police don't take that much of an interest in him. He'll usually steal amounts that are below $125, but sometimes, including the one today, it's more than that. The most recent Brian Wojtek scam was for $300. And in fact, he did it under his own name. Very ballsy. A guy who goes by P.I.O. Glad, P.I.O.G.L.A.D. His name on Twitter is Salas Alam. I don't know if that's his real name. He was a uh, Brian Wojtek victim. And he contacted me. I don't know who this guy is, but I believe him. He sent me a message on Twitter with a screenshot that he sent $300 to Brian Wojtek, which is never a very good decision, but he didn't know at the time. And he said, this scum got me today. What can I do? I reported it to PayPal, but they said they can't do anything because it's a friends and family transaction. So we're going to discuss this in a second about what to do. And if you go take a look at Salas Alam's Twitter account, you'll see how this happened. It was very simple. Uh, Salas tweeted out 15 hours ago, need ACR for PayPal or Venmo. And uh, he got a response from someone named Bradley Jones. I got ACR hit me up. Now, I'm not sure if this Bradley Jones was a fake account of... of, uh, No, he probably wasn't. I think maybe he didn't... Looks like maybe he didn't do it with Bradley Jones. Well, whatever it is, forget Bradley Jones. That was the response he got, but it may not have been Bradley Jones. But what I can tell you is that two hours later, he tweeted out that he was a victim of Brian Voitex. And it was for 300 bucks. So within two hours, Brian Voitex jumped on it. And he must just be scanning for this. He must be scanning Twitter for ACR. You can do that very easily with a search box. And anyone he sees that is looking for a trade, he just pulls the same scam. Hey, send me PayPal, send me Cash App, whatever. They send it to him, and then he just never sends them the ACR. I don't think he even has money on ACR. He may not even have an active account there. He doesn't need one. He just claims he'll send the money. He never does. And unlike other times, this time he actually received the money as Brian Wojtek on PayPal. It says money sent to Brian Wojtek. So what can you do about this if you are a victim? Well, first of all, PayPal. It is true that the friends and family mode of sending on PayPal has no fees, and therefore they provide you no protection. So if you get scammed... They do not have to make it right, and usually won't make it right at PayPal these days. So that part's correct. But that doesn't mean that scammers just have free reign to operate there. What you need to do is separate getting the money back versus getting Brian Wojtek's account closed. And sometimes those can actually work together. But you have to separate them. So don't call up and say, get me my money back, because they're going to tell you that, sorry, friends and family, we don't get involved. What you need to do, if you're a victim of a scam by Brian Wojtek, involving PayPal, involving Venmo, involving Cash App, whatever, contact their customer service and say that a serial scammer, a guy who 
frequently uses their platform to scam people under many different accounts, has just victimized you. Feel free to link to the threads on Poker Fraud Alert or the Twitter messages about it, whatever. But offer to send them this information, that this is a serial scammer who's using their platform to scam people. They don't like this. They want the scammers off there. They're not going to go, well, no, pro- we, we're not getting involved. He wants to scam people. That's cool. They're not going to say that. They're, they'll look into it. They'll kick him off. But you've got to get the right person on the phone. So ask for a supervisor, like if he does it on PayPal. Call up PayPal. Ask for a supervisor. Say, I understand I'm not entitled for my money back. If you can get it for me, that's great. But I'm mainly reporting this to you because it is an ongoing serial scam that this guy is doing. And explain it to them. And then have them close his account. Really press for them to close his account. Because every account they close makes it tougher for him to reopen another one. Not that he can't, but that it makes it tougher on him. But that's not it. This needs to be taken to law enforcement. This is happening over and over again. And even though it's not for a lot of money each time, it's happening so often that if the Las Vegas Police Department hears about this so often, that they will do something about it at some point. If they keep getting complaint, complaint, complaint about Brian Wojtek ripping people off with this scam, then they will take action. How many complaints is it going to take? I don't know. But they, like, let's say hypothetically they got 100 complaints. Would they take action? Yes. If they got one, would they? Probably not. If they got five, would they? A decent chance. So... Every complaint that's made about Brian Wojtek, even if just over the phone, will get it closer to them finally dropping the hammer on him. He lives in Las Vegas. His address, last I heard, which was fairly recent, was uh, 6250 Hardgrove Avenue, apartment 56. He's in Las Vegas. And you can give that to the police. He lives right there in Vegas. That's the address. 6250 Hargrove Avenue, apartment 56, Las Vegas, Nevada. Go to the police, tell them he lives there. Tell them he scammed you. Now, only do this if he has scammed you. Don't don't make false police reports. Don't call up on behalf of other people that won't do anything. Only if you have been a victim, or if you know a victim, encourage the victim to do this. If you don't live in Las Vegas, have them call up. Or call up, you know, whoever's been victimized, you call up the Las Vegas Police Department and ask, what do I do? Someone in Las Vegas has scammed me. They've they've hit me with an internet PayPal scam. What do I do? I know who it is. I know where he lives. How do I report this? How do I get this investigated? And he's a serial scammer. Make sure they understand this wasn't a one-off scam. Make sure they understand there's a serial scammer who frequently uses PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App to scam people. And that he has many victims... Direct them to Poker Fraud Alert. Direct them to the threads on Twitter about it. Direct them them to 2 Plus 2. And they will see he's a serial scammer. All you've got to do is get one detective to take an interest in this. And he's dead. He's not a sophisticated scammer at all. This guy's very unsophisticated. But you've got to make these reports. If you just eat it and don't report it, then nothing's going to get done. Believe me, if I could report it and make a difference, I would, but I can't. It does not involve me. I can give you advice, but I can't do it myself because he didn't victimize me. But if you were a victim, don't wait till you go to Vegas. Like someone said, well, I'll be in Vegas in a few months. I'll report it then. No, don't do that because if you walk into the police station and say, uh, yeah, four months ago somebody scammed me out of 
they're going to laugh you out of the station. Not that you can't report it, but they're not going to care. So you go, four months ago, $300. Why did you report at the time? Well, I wasn't in Vegas, but here I am now. $300 scammed off me. They're not going to care. If you report it now over the phone and then they take note of it and then you continue it by, by coming into the station a few months from then, that's a different story. Then you've already reported it. You, you started it up then. And you can even ask, you know, do I need to come in? I'll be in it a few months. I can sign anything you want. But uh, you know, what can we do over the phone here? This guy is a cyber scammer. And, and give them all the info. And don't be afraid to say this for poker money. They're not going to arrest you for playing online poker. It's not like that. You're, you did nothing wrong. What you did is completely legal. By attempting to buy America's card room chips, you have not committed any crimes. In fact, the one committing the crime was Wojtek selling the chips. Selling the chips could technically be seen as a, as a crime, but not buying the chips. Just like buying into online poker sites, playing on online poker sites, and cashing out of online poker sites is not illegal. If it was, I would not have gone on 60 Minutes in 2008 or CNBC in 2009 and said that I did it. <laughs> you think I would have gone down there and said that if, if the police kind of could have come over and put me in jail with my admission right there on TV that I did it? No, of course not. I wouldn't be that stupid. So you trying to purchase chips for America's card room through these PayPal trades is not illegal. Even if it's against PayPal's terms of service, it's not illegal. So you don't have to worry about the police arresting you for this, I promise you. But, and, and make sure they understand this wasn't like he ripped you off on a poker site. Because they'll say, well, these sites aren't in our jurisdiction, they're out of the country. Say, no, 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 you don't understand. That's what I was trying to do. But this was a local scam where he just straight up took money from me on PayPal and, and disappeared. It's a, it's a scam he runs where he receives money on PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo, which are all U.S. companies that operate in Nevada and other states, of course. And that's how he's doing it. He just takes the money and never delivers anything. And it's not a civil matter. It's not like uh, you feel he owes you money or didn't pay back a loan. This is a serial scam he pulls off all the time. You need to go to the police and say that. You want the police to contact me? I'll explain to them. Give, the, give, give them my number to text me, and I will then text them a number to call me at. I'm not going to give out a phone number to call me at on the air here, but uh, I, I will give the police the radio number to text me and or, or just get the name of a detective, and I will call them, give me their number, and I will explain it. I can't make the report, but if they want clarification from me or they want me to guide them where to find this, this evidence, I will be happy to do so. Please, please do it. I, I want to see this guy stopped. I want this to end. It hasn't affected me, but I want this to end. People keep approaching me about it because they know I'm a good one to go to. People just hear, if you get ripped off like this, go, you know, go to Todd would tell us a poker fraud alert. Okay. So I, I'd love to see this end. And I'd love to see this end with Brian Wojtek in a prison cell. And Brian, if you're listening here, and there's a good chance you are, if you hear this, Brian, you've gotten lucky so far that there has been no law enforcement action against you. I will give you this advice. I'm not going to say to pay people back because I know you won't. So I can say that to sound good, but we know you're not going to pay anybody back. So I won't tell you to pay anybody back. I'm telling you you need to stop because eventually there are going to be people that report you. There's going to be enough reports against you and the police are going to come down and pick you up. 
If you continue this way, it will happen. So I'm just telling you. You should stop now while you're ahead. That's my advice. It's my sincere advice to you. If I was your best friend, I would give you that advice. Stop now or you're going to end up in prison. I don't know what's making you do this. When I knew you 10 years ago, you didn't seem like this. I didn't know you well, but when we talked, you seemed like an okay guy in 2009. So I don't know what happened since then, but to scam people over and over and over, you're just stealing. You're just a, th- a common thief. you got to stop. And someone will take an interest in this soon enough. Text me 775-372-8355 if you are a victim of this and would like some further guidance on the matter. Traders, are you still with us? Uh-oh. Nope, I am dropped, but I am fading fast, so I'm going to have to hang up and listen. Okay, well, thank you for joining us for the time you're with us here, and uh, you can listen and fall asleep in a dreamland to my beautiful voice, and... I will talk to you a little bit later. Very good. Okay, have a good week. You too. Good, good night. Bye. All right. Got to do the rest of the show on my own. This is what I get for starting at midnight. This is my punishment for starting at midnight. You know, I never told you guys why I started so late. I, I totally forgot that part. I started about the trip, and then I, I never told you why I started so late. Let me quickly tell you why I started so late. I took this trip to Tahoe. We got back very, very late at night on January 2nd. It's a very long drive. We didn't stop anywhere. We, we had to stop. We had to stop like, to eat and something else. But we got back like at midnight on January 2nd slash January 3rd. So I thought, well, I don't know if I can do the show Friday. We just got back. And I thought, well, I'll see if I can do it. Well, I got contacted by... Miri, my ex-girlfriend, and she has a son who is very close to Benjamin's age. Very, very close. They're just about the same age, and they're friends. So I will bring Benjamin to see Miri's son, and they play, as strange as that sounds. we were Miri and I were together for eight years. We never got married, never had kids, uh, and then we each have a kid now. <laughs> That's you know, Benjamin's nine, and... Her son's about to turn nine. And they play. So she said, let's have a sleepover, which we hadn't done before. But uh, she invited Benjamin over to where she lives for a sleepover. She's not all that close to me. So she invited me for Friday night to bring Benjamin over for a sleepover. And then I would leave and we'd get him. I'd get him the next day. Well, it just got late on Friday. There's bad traffic. I said I can't go down there because the traffic will it'll take me hours to get there. So by the time the traffic eased up, she said that she and her son are getting tired. It's too late to do it. So the problem was I had not prepared for radio that night because I thought that we were going to be going down there and I couldn't do radio. So I had already in my mind decided I'd be doing radio on Saturday. But now I couldn't do it Saturday anymore. Because now the sleepover had been moved to Saturday. So we did it Saturday. And once I was over there, I thought, you know what? 
I kind of feel like going to Commerce, and she lives a lot closer to Commerce than I do. So I ended up going to Commerce, and I was there all night. In fact, I just played all night and through the early morning, and then went back and got him and drove him home. I was with them there on Saturday night until late, and then, as I said, I went to Commerce, spent all night at Commerce, and then went back from Commerce, picked up Benjamin and brought him home, and then I went to sleep during the day because I had not slept yet. This was now Sunday. So I hadn't done the show Friday or Saturday, and now Sunday, I slept all day, and then I didn't have time to prepare the show, and then I had some other things to do in the evening, so I said, crap, I, I'm not going to be able to do it tonight either. But I go, you know, I can't do this to people. I've, I keep delaying this. I said, there'll be a show Friday. There wasn't a show Friday. So there'll be a show Saturday. There wasn't a show Saturday. There'll be a show Sunday. I can't have no show Sunday. So I, I kind of made a compromise with you guys here by doing this show overnight, starting around midnight, so at least you'll have a show to listen to. No free roll. I know it's harder to listen live at this time, but most of you download the show in the archives anyway, so it doesn't matter really when I do the show. In fact, for most of you, this could be a recorded show. It wouldn't matter. So that's what I'm doing. Next week, we'll be back to the usual Friday time slot around 8.30 or so, 8.30 to 9 we'll start like we usually do on Friday these days, and we'll have our $500 free roll. So it was a combination of the trip, the sleepover, and me going to Commerce. Did I win at Commerce? Yes, I did. Should I have stayed as long at Commerce as I did? Probably not, because I won about two-thirds of what I won in the first 35 minutes, and I kind of spun my wheels and uh, kind of kept going up and down, and then I, I won some more from that point when it was all said and done, but I was there a lot of hours. I was probably there like 12 hours and two-thirds of the winnings were won in the first 35 minutes. And I kind of had that feeling. Like, when when the 6120 limit Hold'em game died there, I kind of felt like the money I had won was going to be, like, most of what I won, even though I stayed. That's exactly what happened. It was a very good 4080 game I was in. I, I actually did something smart, though. I, I'm patting my, myself on the back for one thing here. And that was I was in a 40 game after the 60 game broke, and I was running bad. And I had a bad table image, and I was slowly losing. And I realized that this is not a good table to be at. The game wasn't very good. I was running bad. I didn't have a good table image. And there was another table directly across, which it wasn't a must-move game, which meant I could move over to it. And it looked like a better game. And in fact, there was a fish from the 60 game that was now in that other 40 game. So I asked for a table change, and they moved me, and it was a much better experience there. And I still went up and down there. It was a very high-variance game, but it was a much better game. And the funny thing is, it's funny how people judge games, because people at my first 40 table there were telling me I was crazy to move over there. They were telling me that's not a good game, there's no action, this is the action game. I don't know what they were talking about. The much better game was the other one there. But they were convinced on that side that, that that we were in the better game and we were not. It's like, okay, well, I don't need to argue with them. I'm just going to move. <laughs> I don't care if they think I'm doing the right thing. And they weren't screwing with me. That they weren't trying to get me to stay there or anything. They, they, they were surprised I wanted to move. People were expressing legitimate surprise that I wanted to go there. They were saying that they would think that people there would want to move to our game. I, I don't understand it. Our game was not very good. 
But people have weird determinations, I've noticed, in Limit Hold'em of what constitutes a good game. And a lot of people don't know what constitutes a good one and a bad one, to be honest. But I knew for sure the other one was better. And I moved there, and it definitely was better. And eventually I won. A lot of variants, as I said. It was the type of game where you can either get killed or win a whole lot or somewhere in between. So I kind of got this somewhere in between. But it was a very good game. And I only left it just because I had been there forever and I needed to go get Benjamin. So that that was all what happened there. And let me tell you, com- commerce is such an angry place. There was almost a fight that broke out at the table. Not involving me, but... A lot of people were pissed and throwing cards at the dealer. I mean, it's always angry there, but it was especially angry at this last 40 game I was at. And and the 60 game, too. Some of the same people were involved, but... A lot of angry people, a lot of dealer abuse, a lot of arguing between players, and a lot of just bad sportsmanship. Even people who seem reasonable, like, like... You'll sit next to a guy, he seems nice, seems reasonable, and then like he'll take a few beats in a row and he'll start throwing cards and being pissed and yelling at the dealer. And I'll go, what the hell? Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't picture this guy doing it. Like, like certain people there you can picture are just going to be assholes, but certain ones there seem very reasonable until they start losing. Now, when I'm losing, you can tell I'm in a bad mood, but I, I never abuse a dealer. I never throw cards. I never say it's anyone's fault. You can just see I'm frustrated when I lose. The worst I'll do is they go, oh, unbelievable, if they throw it away. Like something like that. But I, and I never berate anyone to play either. Like the unbelievable will be like if I take a bad beat or something or like a cooler. Like, like that's the worst I'll do. That is the very worst I'll do. And I've, I've never berated anyone for a play that puts a bad beat on me. N- never. I just, I keep it to myself. And not even just to not scare the fish. Like, sometimes a good player will just make a weird play and get away with it and get something lucky. And I don't say anything. But a lot of people there do. It's a very stressful environment. It's something I can only handle in small doses. Or I shouldn't say small doses. I should say occasional doses. It's usually large doses occasionally. Like I'll, I'm actually going there more often recently, but like I could not handle going there every day or every other day. just would drive me crazy. Let's see if Karina messaged me. Otherwise, we'll go down, go on to the next topic. No, nothing. Let me, let me see if she messaged me on my other phone and didn't listen to instructions. Yeah, she did. <laughs> she says, I'm ready. This is an hour ago. I can't believe it. I told her to do this 775 number. Oh, she's still... Okay, we're, we're going to call her. We're going to call her. I'm going to give her a hard time about not following instructions, though. In fact, I'm actually kind of happy it, it took another hour to call her and she was just sitting there waiting because she, she didn't listen to me as far as what number to text. I kept saying, text the 775 number, and she didn't text the 775 number. So for that reason, she was waiting. But okay, we're, we're going to call up. We're going to get to the bottom of this, and we're going to find out about the anti-ep for autism or anti-for autism tournament that she is involved in running. Hi. Karina Jett, hello. <laughs> I, hi, how are you? Well, I'm okay, but uh, 
I expected I know, the text and said it's on five. I know the instructions, by the way, and I tried to do that because I put both numbers in my phone, but for some reason it was texting the old number. Uh, okay. I guess kind of annoying. I, I guess that's an acceptable excuse. You, you should have put one as me and one as Poker Fraud Alert Radio. That would make it easier. That would make it more sense. <laughs> I will do that next time. By, by the way, I, I, our, 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 <laughs> the, the, the co-host, uh, uh, Trader Ruski, who's uh, hung up, he just made an offer to you that uh, he said he has extra passes to CES if you were interested in them. Do you, have you ever gone to CES before? Yes, I have, like, but many, many years ago. Well, if you have, just keep in mind, if you have an interest in going, he has some free passes for you. He just made that offer. Oh, I might pick him up on that offer. Yeah. See, look, look at all the, for the free things you That's get. Very here, just nice for, just yeah. to the show. So, so I, I, was, I was happy to hear that you were still listening to the show when you texted me the other day about, oh, I like the Jew tip of the week. And I'm thinking, which Jew tip? I, I get so many Jew tips, I lose track of them. But then you told me it was about the credit card. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember you now. Know, you should not give me the credit. You should give my husband the credit because he listens and then he talks to me about it. And oh, then I'm like, I oh, I haven't listened to you for a while. Then I'll listen with him. So thank him. Okay, I will th- I will thank him. But but now you've just disappointed the listeners and say, oh, Karina doesn't listen. So. <laughs> But that doesn't mean I'm not listening, though. I am listening. Well, kind of by proxy. encouraging me to listen. Well, it's kind of by proxy. He's like, well, let me tell you what Druff said today. So you you hear third hand from what I said. It's kind of like that old game of telephone where you don't even necessarily hear the exact thing I said. So then he'll, like, play it for me. Oh, he plays it for you. Because, you know, as you know, you are sometimes long-winded in your conversation. Well, I can't can't imagine that. It's uh, I I get right to the point, which is... (laughs) I get right to the point, which is why it only it only takes like six hours per show. So I can't imagine why you'd say that I'm long-winded. All right, no, I can't imagine. Well, let, let's talk about what's going on here with you. And and again, I want to remind the listener here: I'm not being paid anything here. To I'm not promoting anything for for money. I'm I'm actually doing this voluntarily, out of my own free will, getting nothing in return to uh, have Karina tell us about this tournament she's running because I, yeah, she 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 said. She's running this and asked if I would have her on here and have her talk about it. And if if I thought this was just like shameless promotion, I would say no. But I actually said no. This is actually looks like a, a cool thing. So let's go ahead and do it. So so what is going on? What, what are you going to be I doing? I appreciate that. Well, um, we've been doing this tournament for quite a while now. It's actually going to be our twelfth year. So it's pretty awesome. We get to do it at the Golden Nugget. And, uh, we raised a lot of money. I think, um, last year we raised over 175000 to several, uh, different anti or autism charities around the country. One of our beneficiaries for Las Vegas this year is the, uh, Focus program. And it's basically, and I'm sure you didn't know about this, but basically it's a program at UNLV where when kids graduate from high school, they don't have anywhere to go for college. So this is a program for kids with autism or any intellectual disabilities to go through the program and help them, you know, get a college degree, but then have, if they have some minor issues, they'll help them through those issues and still get a college degree. Yeah, and that's actually important because uh, a lot of kids with autism are actually intelligent and uh, and have a lot of academic ability, but then they have certain challenges that uh, people who don't have autism don't have, and, and these challenges can prevent them from 
managing to graduate or pass classes and not from lack of understanding of the material, but just from other issues that prevent them from, from being successful in right, school. Right, like they might give them more time or, you know, more or some help or some aid or something like that. But it's an excellent program, and I didn't even know that they had this, but Pia Zadora, uh son is actually in the program, and she's actually going to be uh, one of our hostess this year and do the shuffle up and deal, which is really nice. Really? So and and there's actually through this uh, event that I've had, I've actually learned about a lot of famous poker players that have children with autism. So it's interesting to see how many poker players are affected by this too. Yeah, the reason a lot of people don't know this is because when you have a child who's going through uh, difficulties or challenges, uh, a lot of times you don't want to just go advertise this to the world, oh, my, my child's having these issues. It's, it's kind of a private thing within the family, so it's not something a lot of people, some people are, are open about it, but other people are like, no, this isn't anyone's business but our families, and they don't say it, and then sometimes you learn later that uh, there's a lot more people than you think who have kids that, that are suffering from uh, some issue on the autism spectrum including Asperger's, which has kind of been rolled into the, the into autism uh, terminology-wise. But, uh, um, yeah, there, there are a lot more than you think, and sometimes it's not obvious. Sometimes people think, well, someone who has autism, they have to be like Rain Man. And, no, that's not, that's not always the case. Sometimes you can meet someone who on the surface seems normal until you get to know them better, but it, but it turns out that they have autism and they're, just, they're high functioning, and uh, but they still have a lot of challenges. So that, that's why... Uh, and, and I don't know why in, in recent years that it seems like this is happening more often. Maybe it's just being diagnosed more often. Maybe there's more attention to it. Maybe there's some other factor we're not aware of that's making uh, it happen actually more often. But there, there are uh, a lot of kids who who deal with this. And and, and I have seen – and like, like Ken Scaler, who appears, he appears on this show. Ken Scaler has Asperger's. He knows it. He admits it. Uh, but so, so I, I know – people who have some form of autism and a lot of times it is just a matter of sometimes a few adjustments that can be made or assistance that can be provided that makes a difference between uh, a successful life or one that has a lot of bad struggles right well i think poker has prepared me for that understanding of that because there's a lot of autistic in my opinion poker players and i'm so used to that now that, uh, you know, I'm used to dealing with those type of personalities, I guess. Yeah, that's that's probably true, too. So uh, so why don't you tell us about, uh, at this event, uh, who's going to be there, who has already agreed to be there that people would know? Well, these people are scheduled to appear, of course. Um, Pia Zadora, William Hung, we talked about that. Uh, you discussed that earlier. Um Jose Canseco, uh, Eric Ade, uh, Sean, um, sorry, he was just on Poker Go. Uh, Sean Perry will be there. Um, and Norman Chad is scheduled to be there also. Duke of Fremont, uh, is that Mike, is it Mike Mattisau and uh, Jennifer Harmon will be Mike there? Mike Mattisau you them? and Jennifer Harmon, David Williams. Yeah. So that's interesting. You know, you know, uh, of, you know, William Hung appeared on this show uh, not too long ago. 
No, I didn't. Yeah. But I like him a lot. He's a great guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I liked him. Yeah, we had an interview with him, and uh, like I candidly asked him everything we wanted to know. I, I put together like a whole question and answer session for him, and and he answered everything. Uh-huh. So that was a that was an interesting interview, and yeah, so I see this, and uh, so and you have sponsors for this as well. Yes, we are very okay. So I partner with another guy named Doug Christy. And I, we help each other with this event, and he actually has a large connection with the furniture market world. So a lot of our sponsors are furniture companies, and they sometimes donate furniture which are for prizes, which are very interesting. But uh, we get these huge sponsor, sponsors from these furniture companies that have the money, which allows us to raise so much money because the tournament buy-in is actually pretty low, but we get these sponsors so we're able to generate so much funds, you know, in excess of 175000 per tournament. That's, that's pretty amazing. I had no idea you actually raised that much each year. I, I, I would, if someone asked me to guess, I would have guessed the number much lower than that. Uh, so how, what is the buy-in to this? If someone wants to come and play, how much would they have to spend to buy-in? It's 150 Okay. And uh, $50 rebuy. So it's very inexpensive. I didn't want it to be some crazy event where you can't afford to come. I wanted everybody to be able to play this event, you know, because sometimes they just really gouge you with these charity events, and it's like only, like, the rich can come. I didn't, I didn't want that kind of event. I wanted an event where everybody can come play and afford to play. Yes, and uh, so now the way the prizes work, so the $150, uh, does it go into a prize pool or does that go to charity and then the the prizes are donated? How does this work as for what people can win? So uh, usually the uh, winner gets a $10,000 seat and then we have prizes underneath there, but all the money that those are donated through the charities and then all the money that is collected goes to either pay for the golden nugget or their entry fee. And then the, the buy-in goes to the charity itself. I see. So, so, so the prizes, the prizes then are, uh, these are, these are donated prizes by various sponsors. Is that the prize people are playing Correct. for? Okay. Correct. Okay. And, and so is there, I was a little confused. Is there a, a $10,000 main event seat this year or is there not? Yes, it's 10,000. I mean, we can't, we don't really. It's usually it's ten thousand because we can't use WSOP right as the because we're not affiliated with right them. right. So yes, it's a main event seat. Okay, well that's great. So you basically get ten thousand dollars, and it's it's to play the main event if you want to. Correct. Correct. Yeah, okay, and um, so I see something that uh, I'm looking at this press release you sent me. Uh, some people know this, some don't, but uh, I know you had a very uh, tragic thing occur involving uh one of your children where uh your your child apollo uh, passed away at an early age and and he mm-hmm. had, and he had autism is is that why uh, you're especially interested in this uh, autism charity yes that's uh my son had autism and that's why this charity is very special to me yeah so you and you've so the winner of this is going to be called the apollo jet grand champion it says here yeah, so the there's a new trophy that's named. So uh, Doug Christie, who is the founder of this event, wanted to, you know, 
do something for me because of all my work for all these years. And he asked me if I could, you know, if I wanted to agree to naming this prize or not prize, but the trophy after my son. And I agreed. I said, yes, that would be a great way to honor him. That's a good idea. That that, that really is. And when I when I heard about this, uh, I, I know it's been a number of years now, but uh, when I, I heard about this, it's very hard for me to picture how how a parent can feel when that sort of thing happens. And, and you know, and I I have a you know I have a child now, and uh, if if anything happened to him, um, I, I don't know how I could handle it. Like, like it's, so, so, it's, so it's it's something you never get over. Um, it lives with me every day. Um, but I tried to move forward, and since my son passed away, I had two other kids, and that's helped me a lot. Yeah, no, I, I, I can understand that. And then actually, you know, the truth is, it's this stays with parents their whole life, even if, you, if parents have their adult children die at an age that's earlier than uh, than would normally be expected for a human life. Um, like I've had my mom tell me that if she would be devastated if I were to die like this age, and I'm I'm not a kid, I'm far from being a kid, I'm close to fifty years old, but but still, you wouldn't expect a person of this age to die. So like even even when we have adult children that are well into adulthood, if they don't live out a full life, uh, parents can be devastated. So so for a, a young child uh, to pass away like that, I can only imagine how it felt. It's and, not normal for a parent to bury their child. Yeah, That's not, correct, it's and it's, that's just something that I would never. Um, I just wish that on my worst enemy. It's 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 such a horrible, tragic thing to go through. Yeah, and I and I, I don't want to make you relive this or, or, or depress the listener either. But uh, I just I want people to know the history a little bit of uh, especially since this was mentioned. It was mentioned in the press release, so I know I wasn't uh, uh, revealing secrets here. So uh, and, and then I thought I thought it was when I saw that. I go, that's 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 a cool idea that they're naming the. Uh, the trophy after uh, your son who passed away as a way to honor him. Yeah, so. I, felt, I felt very honored that they asked me, so it was really nice. Okay. Well, it, this is going to be on uh, January 25th. Is that the date? Yes, January 25th at 7 p.m. at the um, the ballroom. It's not in the it's not in the poker room. Right. We actually get the whole ballroom, and uh, we get around 200 people show up for this event. And even if you don't want to play, we're happy for you to just come and support the event and be there. And, you know, some some people don't play poker. Um, They just come and hang out. They're silent auction, too. They like to just visit with some of the celebrities. Um, And it's really fun, actually. Yeah, you know, I I would actually come down if I I, I you're gonna miss me by a few days. If it was just a few days later, then I, I would I would have been in town. But I'm not gonna be in town on January 25th. But to anyone who's in Vegas who lives there, gonna be there on uh, Saturday Saturday January 25th. Now they can just come. They can just show up there at at 6 p.m. between six and seven and buy in, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yep, and, in the grand ballroom. Yeah, and I see, and I see it's called. Uh, you can go to the website for more information. It's anti the number four autism dot com. Exactly as it sounds, anti then the number four autism dot com for this and yep. and learn about it. And it it doesn't require a lot of preparation. As I just mentioned, just show up at the Golden Nugget between six and seven p.m. on Saturday, January twenty fifth, and uh, bring one hundred fifty bucks with you, and you can play, and you can know that. Uh, 
a lot of that money will go towards uh, the charities that uh, are supporting uh, kids with autism. And it's a good cause, a number of people involved there. And, uh, you know, I've never yeah, seen... And it's actually nice because all the main, a lot of the managers, poker room managers, come and support support this event, too, along with uh, poker players. Yeah. And there's a lot of furniture people that play this event from the because it's the first week of the furniture market. So a lot of players don't even know how to play poker. So the poker <laughs> players have a huge advantage. That's true. In this tournament. That is true. Why why is it that so many people from furniture are involved with this thing? Because the guy that my partner in this does, Prince the founder, he's in the furniture business. Okay. So he was able to. Uh, reach out to his network and get the sponsors. And those furniture companies have big money. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. I know I know a lot of them do. So that that's good that you got all that this going. Like, you know, in poker, you ask reach out to the same people that are like out of money. They don't really. There's not a lot of money in poker anymore. No, I know. You have to reach out to different you know venues, avenues, and and bring that money back into poker. Now, are you, are you the one who started this whole thing uh, 12 years ago? No. Doug Krinsky started it, and he asked me to help him make this a bigger event. He started this tournament with two tables, and he heard about what happened to me from somebody else that introduced us, and I told him I would help him grow this event, and I've been working on it with him ever since. Okay, well, that's... I had always wondered how exactly you got involved. I, mean, I knew about your son that he had autism and when he passed away. I knew that was less than twelve years ago, so I was a little confused about the twelve years thing. But yeah, that, that makes more sense. It was ten years ago that my son passed away, and it was like the first year I didn't want to play. I just came and observed the event, and you know, I just see what a good person he is, and he does this. You know, we don't get paid for this. This is not something we do for money. We do it because we believe in the cause and we donate this money for two other charities because we believe in this and and the awareness of it. So uh, he doesn't make a dime. I don't make a dime out of this. We don't get paid um, and we do it. And, you know, poker is such a selfish kind of thing that we do that, you know, this is our way of giving back. So, you know, I think everybody should have some type of service in their life to, you know, have some well-roundedness in their life because poker is so, you know, kind of selfish. Well, yeah, it, it, is, in an individual, it is an individual game and, and everybody you're sitting with at the table is trying to take everybody else's money and it, it is a, a cutthroat competition at all times and that's... Uh, Correct. Sometimes you, you can... Forget that and go. Wait a minute. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should do something else that isn't like in addition to playing poker that will uh, do some good for people. So that that's very good that you're involved with this, and that's why I agreed to have you on here. Leon, you've been on here before talking about it, but I said, yeah, sure, you can come on again, and uh, you can come on again next year. I appreciate. And I appreciate you allowing me to do this. Just let me know when this is you know, happening next year. I assume it'll be around January again. And uh, so for this year, January 25th at the Golden Nugget, uh, you can register between 6 and 7 o'clock. How, how late can the late registration go? Uh, the big topic these days uh, in poker. It usually goes a couple hours. 
couple hours, first couple hours. Okay, so probably like 6 to 9 and the tournament starts at 7 is probably when people can uh, register? Right. But if anybody has any issues, they can text me or Facebook me and I'll register them before they come there. If there's any issues, I try to be as accommodating as I can. Okay, well, how can they reach you by text? Is there a number? Or Facebook. Or Facebook. Facebook. Okay. Facebook. Okay. So they add her on Facebook. And, uh, yeah, well, okay. Uh, so anyway, anybody in Vegas on January 25th, uh, it's, uh, be a laid back thing there and, uh, you may get to place with some, uh, well-known poker pros or, or celebrities and, uh, be for a good cause. It's only 150 bucks. And maybe you'll, uh, win some of the prizes being given out. And, uh, seems like, uh, I mean, I, I would totally go down there if I was there. Just gonna miss me for a few days. I remember it was like late January. I, I, I went and looked it up on uh, the email I'd gotten because I remember it was late January. If it was gonna be when I, the weekend I was there, I was actually gonna tell you I'd come down and do it, but, uh, just gonna miss me. So anyway, uh. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to discuss with you, they're gonna actually have a horse, um, a horse poker go in a couple weeks mm. with Norman Chad put it together. Really? I don't know if you know anything about that. No, I do not. Is a, a horse poker so, go? Norman Chad, I guess, tweeted about having a home game, a horse home game, and somebody at Poker Go got wind of it, and so they're going to actually tape it. How big is the game going to be? 50 and 100. 50 and 100. You know, I've got to get a little better at some of these games on the horse before I I would do something like this. But uh, the, the 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 Hold'em and the Omaha part is fine, but the the other ones I've got to improve some. I'm, I'm going to the before the World Series. I'm going to play my first horse event this year at the World Series. Really? Yeah, I, I when, am. When why 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 don't you uh, play any of the horse like? You can play with us at high low fifty and a hundred during the World Series. I've just been I've just been stuck in the past. That for for years I was only playing Hold'em. Then finally I said, look, I, I've I've got to evolve here. So I started playing Omaha and, and Hold'em. And uh, so now uh-huh. so now I play at the World Series the the Hold'em the Omaha events. And and then I said, you know what? I, I can't just stop there. I've I've got to I've got to seek to improve myself in the other games. And and then and then play some mixed games at the 2020 series. So I'm going to do that, but I haven't quite gotten there yet. Well, like I, I don't want, I, have, I don't want to play in stuff. Like, they have 2040 horse during the world series. Here? I, I didn't know that, but uh, like I want to already be better at horse before that. <laughs> so I, they have a stud at, at commerce, so I, I can practice there. Uh, the, the rest of them, it's going to be a little bit harder, but the, but uh um, you know, I'll, I'll get there. I just, I just don't want to show up and be a fish. I want to at least be competent. I have to be great at all the games at first, but I've, I've got to be like. Norman Chad has a game at Hollywood Park. It's OE. Yeah, well, I, I guess like Hollywood Park's a little out of the way for me, but I, I, everything's everything's kind of far for me here. But um, yeah, when does Norman Chad's OE game go there? I think during the week. Okay. Maybe I should ask him about this. During the day. I don't know if that's too early for you. It might be, but uh, I actually just found out uh, in 2019 that uh, Norman Chad actually likes me. I had thought all these years he didn't like me. <laughs> I found out during the World Series this year that that wasn't true. I was like, oh, that's cool that Norman Chad actually likes me. 
So how did you not? How, why did you think he didn't like you? Well, because you know, he bashed me on ESPN, which I know was his job. But then he he made some comment on a radio show, like like in 2007 or something that was kind of critical of me. But then uh, he, he said some very nice things to someone at uh, during the main event. He, he happened to know someone who was sitting right next to me. And then when he saw I was there, he said some very nice things to people at the table about me. And he actually like got everyone's attention and told them some nice things about me and my efforts against uh, the bad actors in poker. And, and I was saying, you know, Oh, that was very nice of him to say. So maybe I will get a hold. Yeah. Of- I think it's all his stick. When he says stuff, you know, like for TV or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a, that's what it appears. So maybe I will get a hold of him about the OE. Like I, I, I want to show up at the World Series and and be competitive at these events. Like I don't want to enter events where I'm going to suck. So uh, yeah, I like, mean, you can the horse event Chip and I discussed is like probably such a, you know, there's so many so much players that are dead money because how often are they really playing horse throughout the year right and it's like that somewhat with the 08 events and the PL 08 and then the mixed omaha like i make sure to play all of those because they there's a lot of players in those who, who just are dead money that's i found that so that's uh i was thinking well i, I got to start getting these other mixed events too i'm sure it'll even be to a higher extreme than that but but i also can't suck myself or i'll be the dead money Right. I mean, yes, there's a lot of people that think, you know, playing high hands and stud high low is the way to play. Right. Well, okay, well, I, I'm going to – maybe I'll contact Norman Chad about that. That's interesting information. Okay, well, thank you for coming on here, uh, Karina. And uh, January, once again, January 25th, the Golden Nugget in the ballroom. Uh, starting at 6 p.m., you can register 150 bucks. For the anti for autism, that's number four, anti for autism.com for more information. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Karina. Good night. So that's Karina Jett, who's been on every show I've been part of having to do with poker. Never won poker radio, donk down radio, and now poker fraud alert. She's been on poker fraud alert a number of times. And, you know, people will come to me with things that they want to promote on here, and, and usually I, I say I can't do it. You know, this, this isn't the show for free promotion of things, but this was different. I thought this was worthy of promotion. And I'm serious. If you're there in Vegas and uh, you have some time on Saturday the 25th, and uh, it's only 150 bucks, I suggest you go do it. Here's some texts I got from the 918... Isn't the poker in L.A. better on the weekends? Just curious why you usually have radio on Friday when that seems like one of the best days to play poker. I don't know. Radio just kind of ended up on Friday. It wasn't even something I planned. It just it kept landing there. First it was on Wednesday. Then it kind of shifted to Thursday. Then I started not being able to make it on Thursday. It kind of just became Friday. And then we just kept doing it Friday. So now it's just kind of Friday. I don't know. I mean, you're not wrong. It is better on the weekends because you have more recreational players. L.A. is a little bit different than Vegas. Vegas is the thing that's more dependent upon the weekends because sometimes games won't even go if the fish aren't there that normally come in on the weekends. L.A., it's a much bigger area than Vegas, much, much bigger. L.A. is the second biggest metropolitan area in the U.S. behind New York. So there's a very, very large pool of people who can come to commerce at any given time. And a lot of the people who come in and play, who are the fish in the game, 
these are people who don't work normal jobs, a lot of them. They, they're retired, they're independently wealthy, they're businessmen, whatever it is. You know, it's, there's a lot of people who aren't good that show up at the games that aren't just going there because it's a weekend. So you will have people that are fish that are playing it Wednesday night at two in the morning. Will they have more of this on the weekends? Yes. But it's not like you can be sure the game on the weekend's good and the one during the week's not good. It's uh, it's still kind of hit and miss as far as the quality of the games. Let's move on to talk about the Golden Nugget, but not the Golden Nugget where the Anti for Autism tournament is taking place. The Golden Nugget Atlantic City. Kind of a weird story that I thought I should talk about on this show just because it's weird. A player on the Vegas Casino Talk forum is claiming, and I believe him, that he has a negative account balance. There's a negative comp account balance. I left out that word, comp. Now, on the surface, you may think, well, what's the big deal? Well, let's think about this for a second. He has a comp balance, meaning he has a certain number of comp points, and you would think that at the very worst, at the very worst, your comp balance at any property would be Zero point zero. How could it be negative? How could one actually have a negative comp balance? That would mean you spent comps you didn't have, but then how could this even occur? Well, this is what the guy posted. A poster named B-Ball Wiz, who's actually been a member of the forum on Vegas Casino Talk for three and a half years. He just doesn't post very often. He posted... I play poker at Golden Nugget Casino. I assume he means Atlantic City because he posted it in the Eastern U.S. Casinos Forum. I play poker at the Golden Nugget Casino for the first time in several months. I noticed the next day my comp balance is still at $0. I go to inquire, and I'm told I have a negative comp balance. I speak to a host who says that due to a glitch, I was awarded extra comps and have $130 or so negative balance now in comps. I asked to see a chart or something showing me how or where the glitch occurred, and they refused. What are my rights in this situation? I believe if a player is banned, a casino still does not have still does not have the right to take their comps. I take detailed notes on how many comps I earn, so if I was shown how many comps I was given on their end, and I could tell I was given extra for some reason, there never seemed to be an abnormal amount of comps given to me, although it certainly is possible extra was given. Just wondering what rights I have and what information I'm entitled to. Thanks. So that's an interesting question, and I've never seen this before, by the way. And I do see his IP addresses in New Jersey, so I'm sure he's talking about Atlantic City. But, okay, let's let's break this down. He's being told that he has a negative comp balance because they accidentally gave him $130 or so of comps that he hadn't actually earned. So while they cannot go back in time and take those away from him, and while they cannot force him to pay back that money, because they did comp it to him, and that would not be legal for them to do, they could give him a negative comp balance. They can. It's weird. It's customer unfriendly. I think it's crappy business practice. They should just eat it if they made a mistake. I've never seen this before. Uh, there's many times that casinos, by the way, regret giving comps. The basic situation where this happens is where they assume a player is going to play, they give him nice comps to come in and play, and then the player doesn't play. Maybe because the player is broke, maybe because the player just doesn't feel like gambling. 
whatever it is, that happens all the time. And if the host could go back in time or the casino go back in time, they very well might have not given that comp. But that's just part of doing business. You give comps, sometimes it translates to play, sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then you may, as the casino, not want to comp that player again. So if they were to tell him, uh, we're not going to give you comps anymore in the future, that would be crappy, But especially if it's their mistake, but okay, they could. Or if they were to say to him that, uh, by the way, you, you shouldn't expect as many comps as you got before because we accidentally gave you too many, just letting you know for the future. That's totally fine. What they're doing here is, is basically making him earn back what they overcomped him. They comped him too much, and now they're saying you've got to earn $130 worth of comps before you can earn further comps. And he's saying, wait a minute, that seems illegal because if a casino bans you and you have comp points, they actually have to pay those comp points out to you. They can't just confiscate them. And I don't know if that's the case in New Jersey. I know in Nevada that's definitely the case. In Nevada, you do have a legal right to your comp points, and they can't just ban you to prevent you from redeeming them. If you get banned, you do have a right to go to Nevada Gaming, and Nevada Gaming will force the casino to either let you redeem them in some way or pay you out the cash equivalent of them. So he's asking if that's true, and provided this applies to New Jersey, why can they give him a negative comp balance if it's their mistake? Well, I'll tell you why they can. Because this is for the future. Casinos are required, I'm talking about Nevada here, maybe New Jersey they're not, but in Nevada they are required to that you have the ability to cash out any comps that they give you. That you either get to redeem them in the way that they are supposed to be redeemed, or if you're banned, uh, that you have the right to get the cash equivalent. But what they do not have to do is continue comping you in the future. They do have a right to say, you can come to our casino, but you're not going to earn any comps on anything. Because that's not taking your comps, that's just telling you, you're not going to earn comps in the future. Now, why is that legal? Because you have the ability to walk out and say, okay, well, screw you. I'm not going to play here then. But what the law in Nevada is trying to prevent is if you've played believing you're going to earn comps and given them this business, they can't take them away after the fact. That's what they're preventing. They're preventing like a bait and switch where people think they've earned such and such comps and then the casino goes, ah, 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 you didn't. We don't like you anymore, so we're taking them away. They can't do that. But as far as future, if you're not earning comps, it's up to you. You don't like it, walk out the door. Then no harm, no foul. So they have a right to do many things. Now, in New Jersey, I know they can't ban you for that reason. They cannot ban you for advantage play of any type or... Anything like that. They can't just say, we don't want your business anymore and ban you. They've, they've already hashed that out legally in New Jersey. There's only certain reasons they can ban you. They can ban you for misbehavior, but they can't just say, oh, you know, we gave you too many comps and now we're banning you. They can't do that in New Jersey. I know that. But what they can do is they can no comp you. They can just say from now on, you're never earning comps. In his case, they're saying you can earn comps, but only when you pay back through further play the comps we accidentally gave you. Again, it's crappy. They shouldn't do it. Uh, you may want to see if you can go to a supervisor, uh, like a host who's above the host you talk to. You could talk to the, whatever they call it, the, the supervisor, the top host, whatever it is, 
see if you can, or, or the casino manager, poker room manager, get, get a, someone in management and say, look, uh, th- this is crappy. I didn't ask for this. I didn't pull anything to make this happen. If it did happen, I had no idea it was happening. And now I can't earn co- future comps until I play off 130 of them. It's just not fair to me. I would not have spent them at that rate had I known I was over-earning. You could say that. You could say that you, you count on always having some comps that you earn to use at the casino, and now you can't earn them, and that you spent what you thought you earned, and it turned out you really didn't earn it, and now you're, now, now you're behind without it being any fault of your own. That's what I would suggest. You take this to management, but you do have to know that it's not your right. And it's because it's about the comps going forward. So it's too bad. It's stupid. I've never seen a negative comp balance before. I once had a negative poker balance. I once did have a negative poker balance a very long time ago, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, on Planet Poker. Actually, it wasn't more than 20. It was 19 years ago on Planet Poker. I had a negative balance and... I actually would have had to deposit to get my account back to zero. And I forgot the exact circumstances, but it was something stupid. And I just said, screw it, and made a second account. <laughs> it was something I wasn't even going to fight out. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to multi-account here. And that's what I did. Not not to trick other players, but I, I'm not going to deposit like 500 bucks to get my account back to zero. It was crazy. It, w- it was something that was dumb, but it was going to be hard to fix, and I just said, forget it. That's the only time I've seen anything like that. But it's still, this is a negative comp balance. I've never seen that. Now, I am overcomped at some properties, so that's a different story. Overcomped means that um, the comps that they gave you expecting you to play in the future, you didn't play, and now they feel that not only have you used as many comps as you've earned, you've actually used more than that. But that's different than a negative comp balance. Overcomped means that comps that the host is going to give you, he's just not going to give you anymore until you play more to kind of earn yourself back to where you can get comps. So you can kind of be negative comped in the host with a host where the host won't give you anything until you not only continue playing but play enough to earn back what you were overcomped before. But that's not an exact number, and it's not a number you could ever see. They'll just tell you you're overcomped when you ask for something. But I've never seen like a balance where you earn points, like Caesar's reward credits. Like nobody has a negative number of Caesar's reward credits or or points with M Life. No, nobody has that either, a negative balance. So I've never seen a negative balance in points before. And you can tell them that too, that this is very non standard in the industry of having a negative balance of points. And that it's a small amount of money, and can they please just undo this? But go to someone higher. Your host is not going to do it for you, especially if you just play poker. Your host doesn't give a crap about you. I'm surprised you even have a host. It's probably not even your host, probably just a host there, and they don't want to help you. Hosts don't want to help you unless something's in it for them. So that's probably why you're not getting any help there. Okay, so I want to talk about slot hustling and give you some advice on how to do that. Slot hustling is playing slot machines 
where they're in a positive expectation state, meaning for the moment that the slot you're playing is actually more likely to return a profit to you than the casino, where it's actually one of the few times you can play a slot with the advantage on your side instead of the casino side. Many people would laugh if you told them that positive expectation slots exist. People would say, no, slots are a sucker bet. Slots are the worst bet you can make in the casino. Slots have a huge casino hold. Slots are how they build these casinos and maintain them because of the idiots losing money at slot machines. People look down upon slots as sucker games for people who don't even have the ability to learn games like blackjack and others that require some knowledge on how to play. Slots are for idiots who just sit down and click buttons. And that's always how they've been viewed. And when I first heard about advantage slots, I took the same view of like, what the hell are you talking about? Interestingly enough, I first heard about advantage slots from a girl. And from a girl I ended up having sex with. (laughs) Uh, It was a girl I met on True Poker back when that existed in 2001. And she lived in Vegas and she was a, she was an advantage slot player as was her ex-boyfriend. I think he's the one who got her into it. But by that point she was doing it on her own. And she told me about this and I'm like, really? You can play slots for profit? I, I thought slots were a terrible bet. And she explained to me, no, certain machines will be in a certain state were there positive expectation? I go, well, what do you mean by that? How could they be in a different state? She says, well, for example, if they keep accumulating a jackpot, it's going to pay out at a certain point when the jackpot's high enough, it's actually positive expectation to keep playing the machine. But she says there's other ones that are much more short-term than that. And she started explaining just in basic terms, and I understood it. And I said, oh, wow, I, I never thought of that before. Despite knowing about this since 2001, however... I did not attempt to do any kind of uh, positive expectation slot play until the last like two or so years. And I, I haven't really approached it seriously. There, there are some people who make uh, a living doing these slot plays. And it, it takes some effort. It takes some traveling around the country. It's not just something you can snap your fingers and find right there at any casino and walk out with tons of money. It's something that requires time and effort to do. And what I'm going to tell you about here is something you can do, but you're not going to make a lot of money at it. But it's something you can do if you just, if you just kind of want to try it, if you want to get your feet wet with positive expectation slots. And I'm not going to reveal super secret information here. I'm going to reveal information that is actually available on the web if you Google it. So... Uh, There's a lot of sensitivity in the advantage play community about distributing information because if too many people are doing any kind of particular advantage play, then the play goes away. Then the casino will change something. So these these are things that it's very looked down upon to publicize valuable information. It's one thing to give the information to one or two trusted friends. Some people will even sell information to each other. But... To just post it publicly, uh, it's, it's generally looked down upon unless it's something that's widely known. So what I'm going to give you here 
is information that's widely known in the advantage player community. If you if you go to a slot advantage player and say, oh, look what I learned from Dan Druff, they're going to laugh at you because they, they've known this for a long time. But I'm going to tell you about three different machines on how to easily play them. They're probably in a casino near you because they're all over the place. And it's very easy to do what I want to explain here. So it doesn't require much knowledge or much skill or even that much knowledge about the slot machines you're playing. So I'm going to tell you about three slots. One is called Scarab, one is called Golden Egypt, and one is called Ocean Magic. We've discussed old, uh, we've discussed Ocean Magic and Golden Egypt before on this show regarding some stories involving them and an online version of them and how New Jersey casinos tried not to pay. But I'm going to tell you how to advantage play these machines. Now, sometimes these machines are at decent limits. They're not at high limits, but you'll sometimes find them at kind of uh, low to mid limits, sometimes even mid limits if you're lucky. Often, though, they'll just be low limit. So it's going to be more something you do for fun. And it's one of the rare cases where you can play a slot machine and know the odds are on your side. So let's talk about Scarab, S-C-A-R-A-B. If you look for a machine called Scarab, it's just called that Scarab, there's something unique about it, and that is that they lock certain scarabs on the the reels, the slot reels. These are electronic reels. It's not, it's not old school reels from like the 70s. These are like electronic reels like most of the machines are these days. These uh, scarab symbols are wild, and they will lock them on the screen occasionally. And what happens is every 10 spins, they become wild. So they're actually not wild for the first nine spins. And then on the 10th spin, they whatever scarabs are locked become wild. Well, it's very simple. You want to do the spin where they're all wild because you will have an advantage. So when do you want to play the scarab machine? That's very simple. Look for scarab machines that have a lot of these wild symbols on the left side because they pay left to right. When I say left to right, what I mean is if, if there's five columns, if there's three of the same symbol in a row or even like two wilds and one symbol, which will make three, then you get paid for something. So it doesn't matter what's on the right two symbols. But if there's three symbols in a row and like columns three, four, five, but but columns one and two are not uh, the same symbol, then you won't get anything. So that's what they mean by paying left to right. So that's why you're looking for these locked symbols on the left three columns, especially columns one and two, and especially symbols that are right next to each other, left and right. So like if columns one and two, if uh, on one row that there's two wilds right next to each other locked, then you're looking for that. So as many you can find on the left side, in the first three, first three columns, especially ones that are right next to each other, uh, horizontally. And if you look in the bottom right corner, it actually says what spin number it is. It's very convenient. So if it says spin 2 of 10, well, this is not a good play because you'd have to spin 8 more times for those things to become wild, and you're actually spinning at a very uh, high disadvantage at that point. So what you want to do is you want to take over for some idiot who walked away when it was up to like 8 of 10, 9 of 10, and so you don't have to spin very long to get to number 10. It's very predictable when they'll be wild. It's when it says spin 10 of 10. Now, if it says spin 10 of 10 on the machine, it's too late. That means someone's already done it. You have to, you're looking for something that says 7, 8, or 9 of 10. 
So if you see that, and if you see on, in the left three columns, a lot of scarabs, not like one or two, but if you see a, a number of them, especially ones that are right next to each other, then the machine is in positive expectation configuration. And then all you have to do is spin whatever number of times for them to be wild. If it says 7 of 10, then it'll just take three more times, 8, 9, and 10. It's on the 10th time, it'll be wild. Once you pass the 10th time, or once you pass 10 of 10 and they're wild, do not spin again. Doesn't matter if you're up, doesn't matter if you're down, you're done. So that's how Scarab works, but I want to tell you something about Scarab and the other two machines I'm going to talk about, is that it's not just the way you see the machine when you walk by it, because each configuration of the machine has various games that uh, pretty much make it like several machines in one. Because every different denomination you play for, like the one cent, the two cent, the five cent, the ten cent, uh, each of those, the machine's in a different state, as if it's a different machine. Also, you can spin with, with a certain number of, of credits per, per spin, so you've got to go through every single one of them. You've got to go through all the denominations and all the different line configurations, and you'll see every time you press one of the buttons to change that, the screen will change. So you've got to go through each one of those and see where they are. And for the ones that are eight, seven, eight, or nine out of ten on the spin number, and if there's a number of scarabs locked, and you'll, you can tell they're locked because they'll have like a, a kind of a border around them, kind of a shiny border around them. It'll be obvious to you. If you see a number of them in the way I described, and they're seven, eight, nine out of ten, then spin those till they're ten, then go, go through the other configurations on the machine, the other denominations, the other uh, number of lines, whatever, until you've played them all off or determined that all of the rest of them are not currently in a state you want. And then usually these are in like a bank of four machines or more, so you can go to the other Scarab machines and then do that there as well, which, whichever ones are unoccupied. And then, of course, things will change. People will come and, and spin them again and leave them in positive states without realizing it. So you can come back in an hour and try again or, or a few hours and try again. Depending on where you are, if you're in Vegas, there's probably people doing this all the time. If you're in an out-of-the-way casino, there's probably people who, very few people who do this because there's not many that live in the area that know how to do this. How much money can you make on this? Not very much, but it will be positive expectation. Same with these other two plays I'm going to give you. You're not going to make big money. You're not going to make medium money. It's just something you can kind of do for fun. Okay, let me tell you about Golden Egypt. Now, before I begin, Golden Egypt has the same thing. you got to scroll through all the different denominations and the different uh, number of lines and the there's like two different rows of, of configurations you can do, plus you can change the denomination. So you can, have, you can end up going through like a lot of these, like 75 different uh, configurations of the machine, depending on if they have different denominations. Uh, the last casino I was in, they were locked at one cent. So there were 25 different denominations. They were like five different numbers of lines you can play and five different uh, multi, uh, choices for how many credits you want to play per spin. So it's 25 different configurations on each machine. So I'd go through all 25. Now, what are you looking for on Golden Egypt? Golden Egypt, you're looking for little coins. On the very top of the screen, you'll see each column has two little spots for coins to appear. What you're looking for on the first three columns, you're looking for at least two of those to have at least one coin. So if you see in the first three columns above them, two or more of those first three columns have one or more coins, meaning one or two, 
then it's positive expectation, and you just keep spinning it until that stops. What happens if two coins show up? Well, then the next spin, the next two spins, that entire column is wild. This pays left to right, just like Scarab does. So that's why you only want to focus on the first three. Don't worry about what they have in the fourth and fifth column. Doesn't matter. So that's really what you're looking for. Uh, any, if two of the three columns have one or more coin, if only one column has it, don't bother. If one column has two coins in it of the first three and the others have none, then you can still do two spins because it'll be wild. It'll be worth it. So either, but it's, it's rare that someone leaves it like that. But like if you walk up and see the first and second column each have one coin. Okay. That will be positive expectation until it's no longer like that. When will it no longer be like that? Well, once it goes wild and you spin twice, then both coins will be gone. And if there aren't at least two other columns from one to three that have one coin in it, then you have to stop and move on to the next configuration. And that's it. Doesn't require any skill beyond that. Even if you don't really understand how the machine works, you, you'll understand after doing it enough time. But you don't even have to understand exactly how these machines pay because this has already been figured out by others. You just have to know what puts them in the expectation state and know when to play them and when to stop playing them. Ocean Magic. This one's very easy. Again, go through all the different configurations, including the ones that are called, quote, bubble boost, which cost double, but have an extra feature that they'll give you extra bubbles. But basically there's these little wild bubbles that will appear every so often that will move up the screen every time you spin. So if you see a wild bubble anywhere in the three, like a make like a three by three square in your mind on the left side. So as long as the wild bubble is not on the top row, because that means it's not going to be there because they keep bubbling up. So that means the next spin, it won't be there. But any wild bubble that is in the uh, – anything but the top row and is in the first three columns is what you're looking for. Then it's positive expectation. So just go through all the configurations. Look for that. Is there a wild bubble that's somewhere in the first three columns and not in the top row? Then play it. If there isn't, then don't. Go through all the configurations. Look for it. And again, that's positive expectation. Is there variance in this? Yes. Are you guaranteed to win? No, of course not. Do you lose sometimes? Yes. What are you really looking for? Well, what you're looking for is these machines will sometimes get into like kind of a bonus state or a bonus round. There's various ways that it can trigger like bigger payouts. So you're going to find it's kind of feast or famine sometimes with these. There will be times you, you walk away with small wins too. But what you're really looking for is triggering these fairly – sizable wins and I, you're not going to win a thousand dollars or anything I'm saying that sizable compared to the limits you're playing you, and that will be much more likely to happen when these machines are in this state and you'll also be more likely to get small wins in the, so it's, it's both actually but don't get too discouraged if, if you play it a number of times and keep losing small amounts because what, what you're doing here is you're, you're playing both to win small amounts and also to win the occasional big amount and acknowledging that sometimes you will lose but don't so much count sessions. So go, well, I played this in six out of nine times I lost. Well, yeah, but the losses are never very big because they're not very high limit. And when you win, some t- once in a while it will be like a lot bigger than any loss you've had. And it's just dumb luck. There's no skill. The only skill involved is 
knowing when they're positive expectation, which you know now because I've told you, and discipline. If you're losing, it is tempting to want to keep spinning to get your money back. Do not. Stop as soon as it is no longer in a positive expectation mode. Otherwise, it is a sucker play. It is a sucker bet at that point. In fact, if you think about it, these machines are positive expectation for everybody who doesn't even, at some point. You don't have to necessarily know it's positive expectation for it to be. It's just like card counting in blackjack. What you're doing is figuring out when you're most likely to win. And all players play at that point. They just don't realize and don't bet more. Yet when you're card counting, you can up your bet when the deck is currently configured in your favor. That's what card counting is about. Same with these machines. You're you're only playing them when they are currently in your favor. So for the average player, what they're doing is in order to make up for the fact that there's certain periods where they're positive expectation, the rest of the time they're insanely negative expectation. So it all kind of averages out to what a typical slot machine returns, which isn't very high. Often that's like 90% or less, which is like 20 times worse than the Jacks or Betty video poker I was talking about. That's how bad the return is on typical slot machines. So when you're not in the positive expectation mode on these machines, it's your odds of winning are really, really bad. And that's why it's so important that when it's not – positive expectation, you stop whether you're winning or losing. You can switch around the configurations and the and, and figure out if there's other opportunities on the same machine. That's what you should do. But once you've exhausted them, that's it. You need to walk away. If you don't have that discipline, don't do it. Now you may wonder, are you going to get kicked out for doing this? Are they watching you? Will the casinos clamp down and ban you? Well, up until recently, for the most part, the answer was no. And, in fact, in most places, the answer is still no. But there are some places that are starting to crack down on this. The Peppermill and the Atlantis in Reno are allegedly kicking out slot hustlers. And that's a separate story here. But I am reading, also on Vegas Casino Talk, that slot hustlers over there are now being identified and banned from the property. And very quickly that they've made a decision in these two casinos that anyone who walks around trying to play slots like Scarab, Golden Egypt, Ocean Magic, and, and various others that I haven't described out here, that anyone who seems to be slot hustling like this, going around looking for the state of slot machines and only playing when they're positive, they're going to kick them and ban them for good. And that they've been banning players, quote, en masse from these two places. So this is a small risk you're taking, most casinos don't really care about this. This is not treated the same way for the most part as like card counting. There's various reasons casinos don't like this in general. First of all, some of the slot hustlers are obnoxious. They don't just passively go around trying to find these machines. They'll find ways to trick people off the machines they're playing if they happen to be in a positive EV state and convince them to go to some other machine. So, for example, let's say a slot hustler sees you playing uh, Golden Egypt and you have the machine in a really good state. He may say, hey, you know what? This machine over here, I've seen this hitting all day. This thing has just been a payout. It's just been paying, 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 paying. People are winning so much on this thing, I don't know what it is. You, sh you should come over here and try this one. 
and you know, I see you're losing on this one, this golden user you're playing. Just, just move over to this machine here. This is a much better machine. What they're really trying to do is get you off the machine you're playing, which is currently in positive expectation mode, and the player may not realize, so he can vulture your positive expectation state that you don't even know you have. So these hustlers do this, and when casino patrons eventually realize this, they're really pissed off. Or, even if they don't, sometimes it's kind of a weird experience for them, that people are are bothering them while they're playing. Sometimes people don't want to move, and they end up arguing. Like, the the, the hustler will keep keep up with it. Come on, don't do you hate money? You want to keep losing here, or you want to play at this one? Like, they'll they'll just keep trying to do whatever they can to get the person to get up, and it's, it's an unpleasant experience. So that's one reason they're kicking out the hustlers. Another reason is they don't want the hustlers using up the, the positive expectation play and leaving the crap play for the everybody who doesn't realize it. You may ask, why do they care? Well, because they have a good overall hold on these slot machines. So they're fine with the average player having these small positive expectation opportunities because the player just plays through them and then plays the really bad points too. But they don't want the hustlers taking up all the positive expectation opportunities and the average slot players only getting stuck with the crap. In fact, they prefer the recreational slot player sits down and happens to win at the beginning and thinks he's just getting lucky when he's not realizing he happened to sit down at a positive expectation spot, which will happen a lot more often if the hustlers are not finding these and playing them off. And what I found is, is certain markets... There's hardly any hustlers, and these machines stay in these positive expectation states for a long time. Whereas uh, in Vegas, people are all over them and play them off very fast. So it's it's much harder to look for these in Vegas because people you'll see just just sit by one, and you'll see these guys walking by and constantly like switching through all the different configurations and then and then walking away. You'll see dudes do this. Like I I remember sitting in the Rio watching this happen. Like like every ten minutes, seemingly someone came by and was doing this. Like a different person. But be aware that you can get kicked out for this. You can be kicked out for any reason in Nevada and in some other states. Not New Jersey, but in any other state they can. And the Pepper Mill and Atlantis are starting to do so because they, they don't want them. They, uh, casinos have, a lot of them have just decided, hey, we, we want the customers that are going to lose money here, not the ones that are finding ways to make money here. So beware of the Pepper Mill and the Atlantis. Do not try the slot hustling there. Moving on, I want to tell you guys about an interesting hand that went down in Bobby's room at uh, PLO8. It looked like some kind of mixed game. It, a picture was posted by Elia Lezra, of all people. That, that, that whole controversy kind of died with Elia Lezra. Remember the whole thing about him and owing all the money and that book that he released through uh, 2 Plus 2? And he had the Ask Me Anything, and then people asked him about all the money he owed and he tried to deny it, and more people kept coming forward, and it was very embarrassing for him. Fortunately for Ellie, he seems to have gotten past this, and no one really talks about it anymore. I don't know why, but that whole subject just kind of died. Well, Ellie Lesra was in Bobby's room and playing some kind of fairly high-stakes game. It wasn't super high-stakes because I was looking at the stacks in the picture, and they were all like black chips, which are 100 each, which is still a lot of money, but it's not like when people are playing for many, many thousands per hand. But Still, these pots can get big, and anything in Bobby's room is is always at least fairly big. So he tweeted out 
an interesting uh, picture and described it. And this was a PLO8 hand where two players got it in and agreed to run it twice. Now, as I said during the intro, running it twice just means whatever cards are left to be dealt on the board are going to be dealt out two different times as if it's two identical hands being dealt out. And then if each player splits it, if one wins one, one wins the other, then they just uh, each take half the pot. If, if one wins both, then that person gets the entire pot. This is a way to control variance where nobody's drawing dead. And usually this is done when nobody's drawing super thin. So as I said, a good example would be uh, a set or two pair against a flush draw. In, in Hold'em, for example. And with one card to come, or sometimes two cards to come. And they'll agree to run it a certain number of times, and then the, the pot will be split in those proportions, and each one treated as a separate pot. And then after they run it the first time, they'll reshuffle and run that the second time, reshuffle, run it the third time. Reshuffle that as the, the hands, that, the cards that are remaining. Now, this was an Omaha hand, Omaha high-low, being played in pot limit format. For those of you that don't know how that game works, it's similar to Hold'em in some ways, but not similar in other ways. You have four cards in your hand instead of two. There is a board, just like Hold'em has with a flop, turn, and river. You have to use two cards and only two cards in your hand. You have four. You have to use two, unlike Hold'em, where you can use zero, one, or two cards in your hand along with the board. Here you can only use three cards in the board out of the five, and you have to use two of your four cards in your hand. And in the high-low version of Omaha, then you also are trying to make both a high and low hand, and each one is half the pot. However, for a low hand to exist, there has to be a poker hand you can make, which is... a uh, what's called eight or better, which means it has to be uh, eight high or worse, technically. Meaning if there's no way you could make a hand that's eight high, or seven high, or six high, five high, four high, well, you know, like unless you can do that, actually it wouldn't be lower than five high. Five high is the lowest one you can make. But if you can't make a hand between five, a five card hand between five and eight high, then with five cards, three on the board, two in your hand, then there's no low. And then the low portion of the game is just not played on that hand. So in this particular hand, the board was 9-3-3-2, and there were two diamonds on the board. The three and two of diamonds were on the board. So it's 9-3-3-2 with the three and two of diamonds. One And the players got it all in. One of them had an ace-3-4-5 with a 4-5 of diamonds and the ace of diamonds, too. Ace three four five, where everything's a diamond except the three. That was one of the players. The other one had ace two nine nine. Now, quickly breaking this down, the guy who had ace two nine nine had top set full. Remember, the board's nine three three two, so he has top set full. He's got a very strong lock on the high portion of the hand because he's got top set full. And his opponent with ace three four five, there's only two ways he can beat him on the high portion of the hand. He can get another three, the very last three in the deck, to make quads. Or he could get the six of diamonds to make a straight flush. That's the only two ways he can win the high part over the current top set full on the river. 
For the low part, there is no current low with a board of 9332, since there's only two unique cards on the board that are low, that are eight or, eight or fewer. So, or eight, eight or less, that is. Not eight or fewer, eight or less. So since you've only got a three and a two on the board, uh, there's no way to make a low at the moment. So for the, a low to be possible for uh, the player who has the A345, for a low to be possible, there would have to be another card that hits that is uh, not a three or a two and is below nine. So it would have to be an ace, a four, a five, a six, a seven, or an eight has to hit the river of any suit for a low to be possible. If something else hits the river, then there's just no low and they only play high. So they agreed to run this twice. Now, who had the edge in this hand? Well, the guy who had the pocket nines had the edge, the ace-2-9-9. Why? Because he's already got almost a lock on the high. There's only two outs to beat him in the high. And aside from that, he's going to win the high. Now, if a low hits, then the other player is going to win with the ace-3-4-5. But for a low to hit, again, there has to be an ace, four, five, six, seven, or eight. And unless it's the six of diamonds, he's still only going to win half the pot. So the guy with the, with the ace-2-9-9 nine, nine has almost a lock on the on the high and may scoop the whole thing. He has about a 50-50 chance, roughly, to win the whole pot. Definitely better to be that guy running this out. So they agreed to run it twice. Well, the first time they ran it, the Six of Diamonds ran off on the river, which was a horrible card for the guy with the pocket nines. Why? Because not only did the Six of Diamonds give a straight flush to his opponent, but it also made a low. So the entire pot went to the guy with the A345. So not only did the guy with the Nines end up uh, losing the high, he also lost the low. <laughs> Which actually was going to happen in either case. If, 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 if that or the th- So there's, there's three things that could happen here. The Six of Diamonds could hit, which would... Uh, allow the whole pot to go to the guy with the A345. The final three could hit, which again would put the whole pot to the guy with the A345. There wouldn't even be a low. Or just some other low card would hit and then they'd split the pot. Or the fourth possibility is none of those things happen and the guy with the pocket nines wins the whole pot. So I told you the first time the Six of Diamonds hit which was basically a two-outer for the guy with the A345 to actually win and not chop. The second time they ran it, would you believe the second time they ran it, the three came out. The other of the two outs. So the guy with the A345 won the entire pot when he only had two outs to do so, when they ran it twice. They ran it twice, and the only way he wins the entire pot is if he gets a two-outer twice in a row and did. To compare it to Hold'em, it would be like if, uh, let's say you had pocket kings against uh, pocket fours, 
and someone has a set of fours, and the only way you can win on the river is by getting the third, the one of the two remaining kings. And imagine you agree to run this twice, and both time he gets, both times he gets one of the kings. Not just once, but both times you run it out, he gets one of the kings for the final card. Would you feel super, super unlucky if you ran the river twice and both times he got one of the kings? That's what happened here. Now, it's not quite the same because, again, there was also the chance that the much more, the much better chance that the pot would be split. Um, typically, what would have happened here if the luck was average on both ends? Typically, what would, have hap- what would have happened is the guy with the nines would have scooped the entire thing one time and split the pot the other time. So he would have ended up getting three quarters. Here he got zero. So his equity was around three quarters of the pot when they ran this twice, and he ended up getting zero. But the amazing thing was, I mean, the, losing that type of equity is not a huge deal in poker, but the, the amazing thing was... The way he lost it, the only way he could walk away with zero is if a two-outer hit twice, and it did. Twice out of two. And this is, again, for pretty high stakes. Looks like uh, thousands of dollars were lost this way. That is pretty bad. I don't know who the loser of the hand was. The winner was reported by Elio Lezra as Taylor M., but I don't know who that is. Taylor M. got very, very lucky. Elio Lezra posted that picture on Twitter. That is how we know about it. I'm talking about the Galfond Challenge. The Galfond Challenge is... I haven't really talked about this much here. It's, it's been you know, kind of a medium-sized story in poker, but I, I don't know. I just haven't talked about it because I just didn't find it that interesting. But it's getting a little more interesting enough to where I said, okay, I'll talk about it. Phil Galfond has been trying to find ways to bring attention to his failing poker site, Run It Once. Phil Galfon had a successful training site, also called Run It Once, for several years now, but his attempt to start a poker site has been met with pretty bad failure, and we've discussed that many times here. And to be honest, it hasn't changed much. I mean, they they increased their traffic some with some of their recent changes to their rakeback model, but it's it's still not where they need it to be. It's not even close to where they need it to be. It's still losing money. And I don't know how much longer they're going to continue. Looking at Poker Scout, Run It Once Poker had a uh, 24-hour peak of 115 players. So that's not exactly what the investors were picturing when they put all this money into this. And they have an average of uh, like 35 players, it says. That's pretty bad. You, You think... Phil Galfon developed a poker site from scratch. I mean, he didn't personally do it, but he was the CEO. He was the one directing the entire thing. Do you think all that money was put into starting a poker site from scratch to have 35 players a day on average? No. With a peak, the very best they see in 24 hours is 115. Do you think that's what he was going for there? No, he was looking to compete with poker stars. Or at least one of the ones right below poker stars and he has not been able to by the way poker stars is no longer according to poker scout the most active site in the world right now the idn poker network is actually a little more active than poker stars it's close though though as i mentioned before gg poker is rising pretty fast they uh at this rate they may actually get there 
they've got a while to go. They've only got about 20% of the traffic of IDN Poker and Poker Stars, but they're they're getting there. They're growing. But anyway, that's a different topic. Getting back to the uh, run at once situation, I've talked about this a lot. I'm not going to go into it much further, but Galfon is starting to get desperate. And he thought that one way to bring attention to his site is to offer these heads-up battles to anybody who wants to play him. He just put out an open challenge, who wants to play me heads-up for high stakes, and he was encouraging people to play him on run at once. He was saying that he won't require this, that they... uh, they can talk about playing elsewhere, but this is really where he'd like the play to take place. He's basically trying to promote run at once. Now, I said at the time that's a bad idea. You should never play a high-stakes battle on a site that somebody owns. Do I think Phil Galfon's a cheater? No, I've never heard those allegations about him. He has a good reputation for being an honest guy, and I don't doubt that. And if somebody asked me, do I think Phil Galfon would cheat and rig his own site, in one of these high-stakes matches? My answer would be no. However, while I mostly trust Phil Galfond, I do not necessarily trust others who work at Run at Once. I don't know who they are. You don't know who they are. Others have an incentive for Phil to win these matches and for Phil to not like look like a fool in these matches. And some people are wondering, how good will Phil Galfond be? Might, might he be rusty... Might he not be as good as the very best players today? He was a great player at one time, but maybe he's out of practice. He hasn't evolved enough with the game. Maybe he won't beat some of these people. Maybe some of them will crush him. Maybe he'll just run bad. It's to the site's advantage for him to crush, for them to have these matches where Phil, the godlike poker player, just kills everyone. So somebody who is working for run it once that has access to the code for the site that may not want to lose their job, they could rig this for Phil without even telling him. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but there's many possibilities that you could get screwed there playing on run it once. And you'd have to trust the person running that site as much as you trust your own mother to want to play someone in a heads up match on their own site. You should not trust me to play a heads-up match against me on my own site. You should not. It's it's happened before. People have, A few times people have played me where they've made some challenge, and I, I haven't cheated anyone, but uh, it wasn't for a whole lot of money. But if, if I offered to play you for $100,000 on my own site, should you take me up on that offer? I'm going to tell you no. I'm not going to cheat you, but you don't know me well enough to know for sure. Maybe I'm a big phony. Maybe I'm a hypocrite. Maybe... Maybe I've been cultivating this image as a trustworthy guy so I can screw you when it really matters. You don't know. And I don't know. And you can't know someone unless you're really, really close to them, what what their true character is. And when there's that much money involved, you just can't leave this type of thing as a possibility. So you definitely would want to do this somewhere not on run at once. But that's why Phil is doing this whole heads-up challenge. So who has accepted the heads-up challenge? Well, Bill Perkins accepted it. He's the one who runs that thirst lounge. He's that rich guy. He's a 
Uh, he's accepted it just because he enjoys these type of things. Fernando Haberger, also known as Jay Nandez, accepted. Jay Nandez already didn't have a very good reputation. He had a conflict with Doug Polk, where he had an 18-month contract with Upswing Poker, which is Doug Polk's training company, and then he walked out on this after three months with very flimsy justification and then there was this whole thread on 2 plus 2 where he tried to explain himself and just made himself look worse and then someone else came forward with a story about Jay Nandez screwing them because they, Jay Nandez had gotten their mother to knit scarves for him like a bunch of scarves and Jay Nandez didn't pay that guy and it seems like Jay Nandez is kind of a, a slippery character with questionable morals who just does these type of things and then justifies it in his own brain that he was in the right and that anyone questioning him is actually the the, the asshole there and not him. So not surprisingly, Jay Nandez, who had uh, agreed to do this, backed out of it, even after getting backers for it. On December 17th, Jay Nandez posted on Twitter, Sorry, everyone, I won't be participating in the Phil Galvon Heads Up Challenge. After receiving and discussing the finer betting terms with top Heads Up PLO players, I recognize that getting stake for the match isn't an issue. The responsibility of maximizing my shareholders' EV would call for a much more extreme preparation and execution than I originally intended. My main goal was to join Phil. Uh, my main goal to join Phil was to have fun in an educational match, promote our brands, and of course the game. But live streaming heads up nosebleed stakes for fifty thousand hands would take all my focus and time completely for the next few months. In short, I'm not willing to accept my backers' money, knowing I won't be fully committed to their EV or their sacrifice to my existing comments to my members, uh, my existing commitments to my members. Unfortunately, Phil and I were not able to reach an alternate agreement in lowering the stakes and playing fewer hands while giving up my odds. I take responsibility for this and hope that we can still come up with a way to offer the PLO community an entertainment and entertaining and great content in another format down the road. So th- this is just a lame way to, bake, to back out of it. I mean, this, this is a lot of nonsense he's writing. And this is the type of crap he would write in the 2 plus 2 threads where he was uh, criticized for other things. He always presents this type of thing like like it's a selfless act on his part. Oh, I'm doing this for my backers. It wouldn't be fair to them, and uh, this is going to take away all my focus. And I would I I, I need to, I need to be fully committed to this, and I don't have the time to fully commit myself. And if I were to take my backers' money, th- then then I wouldn't be fully committed. And it would be fair to them. Blah blah blah. It's such crap. I I think Jay Nandez was afraid that he was going to lose a lot of money, and decided to back out of it. That's what I think happened here. And he has a history of just not keeping to his agreements. So no more Jay Nandez. Uh, the, the Bill Perkins thing is still on, though. Daniel Cates agreed. Jungle Man. And uh, this is going to involve uh, 7,500 7, hands. Uh of uh, 100, 200 euro PLO. So that's an interesting uh, one that hasn't taken place yet, but that would be uh, an interesting one to watch. Brandon Adams. Remember him? He goes way back. You remember Brandon Adams? 
Brandon Adams uh, used to play on Poker Stars as B Adams seventy eight. Uh, I got to know him on there before anyone really knew who he was. He was like a a finance doctoral student or something at the time. He, you know, his the seventy eight was in reference to the year he was born. Uh, now that would make him forty one and soon to be forty two, presumably. But at the time, like back in 03 or 04, he was a fairly young guy then. He was in his mid-20s. And uh, so so I got to know him a little bit. He seemed like a nice guy. We went to dinner a few times. Uh, he, he was one of these guys who was like always well-dressed. Like you, you would never see Brandon Adams showing up with a, a wrinkled T-shirt and uh, and his hair looking kind of messed up. He's not. He's kind of the opposite of some of these like grimy-looking poker players who look like they just rolled out of bed. He he always looks like he's he's going out to a nice dinner. That's the way he always looks. But uh, he kind of disappeared from poker for a while. Then he reappeared, and now he's been playing some higher stakes games and higher stakes tournaments. And so he has agreed to play. And he said he's going to be playing forty hours of live poker, hundred two hundred PLO, with a side bet. Of $150,000 And this is supposedly going to happen During the summer And they're going to try to live stream it So that's not going to be online Uh, Brandon Adams wanted to play it live And they're going to Uh, Then There's Two other uh, players that are going to be Playing against him, two online players One uh, is Venny VD1983 or, or, or 1993, not 1983, 1993, presumably in reference to the year that guy's born, whoever that is, probably a 26-year-old. And another guy named uh, Action Freak are also going to be playing. So that's, uh, those are some other challenges that uh, they're going to play uh, 100-200 Euro PLO, that is Phil and Venny VD 1993, with a side bet of, of 200k uh, euros. And Action Freak, they're going to be playing 15300 euro PLO, 15,000 hands, with a side bet of uh, 150,000. Now, let me explain these side bets. These side bets, uh, they get different odds depending on what the uh, perceived edge is. So, believe it or not, the uh, some people are going to get uh, much better odds than others. For example, Bill Perkins, who's going to be playing uh, either 50,000 hands or a 400k euro loss, meaning that uh, one to either side loses 400k, it's over. There's also a side bet of 4 to 1. Meaning that uh, if Bill Perkins wins, he gets four times what Galfond would get, and the the four to one side bet is eight hundred thousand to two hundred thousand. Meaning if uh, Galfond wins, he just gets two hundred thousand, if uh, plus whatever he wins the, in, in the match, and then uh, Bill Perkins would get eight hundred thousand plus whatever he wins in the match if he wins. So Bill Perkins, sort of long odds against him. It's assumed that uh, Galfond's a much better PLO player. With Brandon Adams, 
the negotiated side bet is only uh, 150k to 100k. So there are still Galfond is considered the better player, but not by that much. It's 150k to 100k. It's only a factor of uh, 50%, where it's four times for Bill Perkins. Uh, for this uh, Venny VD1993, it's two to one, 200k euro to 100k euro. Again, where Galfond is considered the favorite. Action Freak. It's actually even money. So Action Freak is so good that they they actually ended up uh, agreeing that they're going to just uh, have an even side bet. They're seen as even players. What about Jungle Man? Who would be the better player? Who would you bet on with Jungle Man versus Phil Galfond? Well, that hasn't been figured out yet. They're still finalizing the details. The side bet hasn't been figured out, but they're going to play uh, 7,500 hands of... Uh, 100, 200 euro PLO. So there's a lot of discussion of who is going to be really the favorite in these. And is, is there perhaps a good betting opportunity? Because you can also play side bets if you want uh, on uh, you know, with other people, presumably at the same odds, if you want to back either side. Uh is someone getting uh, odds that are too long? Are some not long enough as far as Galfond's skill? Is Galfond really tied for the best player here of these people? Is Perkins really a four to one dog in realistic uh, in the realistic world to win this whole thing? Is Brandon Adams really a one point five to one dog? Is this Venny VD 1993 a two to one dog against Galfond, or is Galfond not the same player compared to others as he was a number of years ago? Now, obviously, Galfond's a great player and was very, very well respected in PLO, and that's what they're going to be playing. But I don't know. Especially some of these online guys, like this Venny VD person. I actually might think he's he could be the best odds here to get the two to one on him. I don't know much about him, but some of these online guys are really good. I'm not sure if Phil has kept up with him. They also added Chance Cornuth with a big side bet of uh one million to two fifty K. Where again, it's four to one odds. 100, 200 PLO, 35,000 hands. That's again, you can get four to one on Chance Cornuth versus Galfon. Now, yes, it's over the whole lot of hands like this, but is Galfon really still that good compared to some of these guys? I don't know. I don't know. I would much rather go with Chance Cornuth for four to one than Bill Perkins four to one. That looks like there might be some good odds on that one as well. Now, can Galfon really cover all this? Like, like, what if he loses all of them? Does he really have a deep enough bankroll to pay all this out? Now, it's possible that he's being backed in some way for this. It's possible he even pitched this to his existing 
investors for the Run It Once poker site saying, hey, this is the only way we're going to get enough publicity for our poker site. And I think it's a positive expectation opportunity for us. So how would you like to back me in this? And it'll be kind of killing two birds with one stone. Number one, I think I'll win money for you. And you'll recover some of the money you've lost on Run It Once poker. And number two, maybe it'll bring some attention to the site. The site will do better. I don't know if he really has this much money to lose, potentially. Now, keep in mind, there are still no concrete dates. That's why I haven't told you when to watch for these. It's not clear when these are going to go. And this could end up not happening. Either Galfon could back out, though I don't think it's going to happen. I think Galfon wouldn't offer this unless he's going to plan to go through with it. He's not really a flake. But I could see some of these other guys backing out, like Jay Nandez already did. Which ones will take place on Run It Once Poker? Well, Brandon Adams definitely isn't playing there. Some people are being advised, some of his opponents are being advised they'd be stupid to play him there, which I agree with. So it's possible that some or all of these guys may refuse to play on Run It Once Poker and they may play elsewhere on what's considered a a neutral venue, whether online or live. So we shall see. I don't think Galfon's going to back off or flake on some people. You know, there is a possibility this whole thing will break down if people just refuse to play on Run at Once. Like, let's say every single one of them won't play on Run at Once. I, I could see Phil Galfon walking away at that point saying, no, this is really the whole point of this. If we, if we, uh, Aside from the Brad and Adam one where they agreed with it, to do it live. But he may say, look, if we're going to play online, it's got to be on my side, otherwise forget it. Now, he has said before that he is open to doing it elsewhere. But maybe if everybody doesn't want to play there, he'll abandon the whole idea. Unless he thinks he's good enough to beat these people and that it's still a positive expectation move for him. Or maybe he thinks he just needs to do this to get his name out there again, make himself relevant in 2020. It's possible as well. So I will give you future news on this as it becomes available. Okay, I want to talk now about... A question that was proposed to me, uh, the person really wanted an answer. It wasn't a hypothetical, but it was a video poker and tier credit related question having to do with Caesars. And I thought it was an interesting enough question to where I wanted to bring it out on the show, even though I've already given the person the answer. So what this guy wanted to know was whether it was a better idea to play full pay, full pay, which I'll explain in a second, triple do- double bonus video poker, but only getting uh, a tier credit for every twenty dollars he wagers, or to play nine five jacks or better, which is not full pay, but getting a tier credit every ten dollars that he wagers. So if the point here is to earn tier credits, let's say presumably to make diamond, where you need to earn 5000 in a day and you become diamond or 2500 twice. If the point is trying to earn tier credits here, which is the better one to do? That was his question to me, and that's a good question. Should you play double the amount on the better game? 
or just stick with the worst game where you don't have to play double the amount. Now, on its face, it would seem something that would be quite easy to figure out. Full pay, triple-double bonus video poker is what's known as a 9-7 triple-double bonus poker, referring to the pay for the full house in the flush. That returns with perfect play 99.55% of the money wagered, where 9-5 jacks are better, returns only 98.45%. So you would think that you would just run a hypothetical number that would be wagered and figure out where you'd be expected to lose more. So let's just pick out the hypothetical number of wagering 10,000 at jacks or better, where you'd have to wager twice as much, 20,000 at triple-double bonus full pay to earn the same number of tier credits. What would the person lose by expectation in each case. Well, there'd be a $90 expected loss at triple-double bonus and $155 expected loss at jacks or better. So even though you'd be wagering half as much at jacks or better because the pay table's worse, you'd actually lose on average more money. So you would think the average, you think the answer right there would be, okay, play the triple-double bonus. If you're going to choose between the two, just play twice as much at the full pay triple-double bonus And there's your answer. And that's what a lot of people would give as their answer, and that would be that, but that was not my answer. Now, all the numbers I read you were correct, but there's something you need to think about. Now, that is the Royal Flush. A Royal Flush will come on average once out of every 40,000 hands you play. That's not very often. And you can go through long slumps even beyond that, obviously. So... If you're not playing that many hands, or even if you're playing like 5,000 hands, you're probably not going to get a Royal Flush. The problem there is the Royal Flush is actually a decent portion of the payback. The Royal Flush accounts for around 2% of the entire payback in the machine, which means if you don't hit one, whatever the expectation is for that game with perfect play, you need to subtract about 2% for what I call the non-royal payback. And the reason you need to do that is because you probably won't hit a royal if you're not playing for very long, so then you should have a better idea of what your real expectation on the machine would be unless lightning strikes and you get that royal. So I always say, don't just look at the machine's payback, look at the non-royal payback if you're not going to play a ton of hands. Well, the royal is actually worth more percentage-wise, at 9.5 jacks are better than it is on triple-double bonus poker. But still, if you take out the Royal from each one, that leaves a 97.79% at triple-double bonus of the non-Royal payback. That is the average payback you'll get if you have exactly average luck but don't hit a Royal. And the... Non-Royal payback as the Jacks are better, the 9.5 Jacks are better, is 96.46%. So, in the same betting scenario, if you're running 10K credits at Jacks are better, or, or, or 20K at triple-double bonus, on average, you would lose 442 at triple-double bonus, and 354 at Jacks are better. Hmm, wait a minute. Now we've switched. Now if you ran that amount you'd actually lose less on jacks or better, even with the worst pay table. 
Why? Because you had to play twice as much at triple-double bonus. And because not hitting a Royal, then that changes everything proportionately of how much worse one is compared to the other. So that's the way you need to look at it. Now, you may say, well, that's stupid. The Royal is part of the payback. Yes, you're not going to hit it most times, but there will be those rare times you do, so you have to figure that in. You can't just take the top payout and say, well, we're just not going to consider that for the average payout for the machine. And I say, yes, you should, because if you're only going to run a small number of hands, you need to think about what is most likely to happen, not just what would happen if you were able to run a million hands or a billion hands. Two totally different things. If you don't believe me, think about this. Let's say I gave you an offer where you have 10 chances to pick a number between one and a billion. And that I will have a computer also select a number between one and a billion. And if you get the same number as the computer guessed, then you will get $100 billion. And let's assume I could pay you $100 billion. Obviously I couldn't, but let's say I, let's say I could. And let's say I told you, you get to play a maximum of 10 times lifetime, and that's it. Once you've played 10 times, you can't continue to play. And each entry costs $100. Well, what's the expectation in this game? The expectation is actually zero. It's even money. Because if you played a billion times, on average you would hit once, and you get $100 billion, and you spend $100 billion getting there. So that would actually be a zero EV game with no edge to either side. However, since you would only have a one in a billion chance to hit, and since you would only be doing it 10 times, your chances would be next to nothing of hitting it. Because you could only play a maximum of 10 times. Well, that would cost you $1,000. Unless something super, super, super unlikely happened. You'd be giving me a hundred, uh, you'd be losing a thousand dollars. Just about everybody would lose a thousand dollars. If every single person in the United States played this game, everyone except three people on average would lose a thousand, while those lucky three would win a hundred billion. So, what do you think? Could you approach that game, say, well, it's, it's a zero EV, so I'm not, I, I probably won't lose a thousand dollars because it's, it's 50-50. No, it's not. It's almost certain you're going to lose a thousand dollars if you play that game, despite the fact that there's a zero expectation on either side. And that's because the payout is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly top heavy in that game I just talked about. The, guess the number between one and a billion game. So the expect, but but if asked what is the expected payout, it's 100%. So that's why you can't just go with expected payout. You have to go with likely expected payout. And an easy way to do that is to take the royal out 
and see what you would lose on average. So if you multiply this out, it actually becomes better to play the jacks or better unless you're running a whole lot of hands. Then it becomes better to play the other one. So that's my answer to him. He didn't tell me how many hands he's running, so I couldn't give him a definitive answer. But I told him how to figure it out. Now you may say, why is this a segment? Why, why do I have to tell you guys what I told him? This is his own individual situation. Most people aren't making this decision of triple-double bonus, full pay versus 9-5 jacks or better. I don't even know what casino he found this at. It's just like, why am I making this a segment on the show? Well, because I've had people asking me recently, because I just ran hands at 9-6 jacks or better at Lake Tahoe. And people said, oh, yeah, that's a great game. You only lose $46 per uh, 10,000 wagered. Wow, so you could earn diamond for $230. And they go, wow, you know what? Uh, you actually ran pretty bad because you lost 700 trying to run diamond, and the, the expectation is only 230. So you actually kind of ran a little bit bad there. I goes, no, actually, I didn't because I didn't get a royal. And my I actually did better than the average non-royal payback there as I mentioned earlier in the show. And they were non-royal payback, what are you talking about? And I told them. So people talk all the time about, number one, what bankroll you need to play these games to earn diamond. And number two, what your average loss is going to be. And some people look at the average loss at 9-6 jacks or better it's somewhere like Lake Tahoe, and, and they go, okay, well, I can earn diamond for an average loss of 230. Well, number one, you had to play absolutely perfectly, which you probably won't. And, and number two, even if you do, that's including the royal. And you can't include the royal if you're just earning diamond, because you probably won't hit a royal, as I didn't hit a royal. The odds are very much against you hitting a royal if you're just earning diamond. So you've got to consider that, too. You've got to consider you probably won't hit a royal, and then how much is your average loss going to be, which still has plenty of variance, but at least it starts to get more realistic. So that's something to keep in mind. If you want to do rough calculations, just whatever the video poker return is for the game you're playing, for perfect play, just knock 2% off, and that's your non-royal return, and then figure out if that average loss is something that's palatable to you. And keep in mind, you may lose more than that. You may not. You may do better, but you also may do worse. It's a quick and simple way you can figure out if it's something you want to try. Let's see if we've gotten any more texts here. I do acknowledge it is 3.30 a.m. Pacific time right now. No, I did not. No, I did not. I can see how many people are listening, but at this time... I, I will wonder how many people are really listening and how many fell asleep with it on. My ratings do not show me the number of awake listeners, only the number of listeners. I know there's some asleep listeners because when the show ends, I see that some still have it on. <laughs> if you were awake, you would turn it off as soon as the show is over. And I always have like several people who don't, which and even when I start the rerun, after the show's over, they leave the rerun on. So I, I, I have a feeling these people are not awake. But we, we have some awake listeners, and I appreciate those of you that are here with me 
at this very late hour, though some of you might be getting up on the East Coast at uh, 6.30 a.m. to start off your Monday. In Europe, it's uh, 11.30 a.m. currently in London. In Paris, it is 12.30 p.m. In Australia, it's actually time for bed for some people the next day. Some people are going to bed on Monday night already in Australia. It's 10.30 p.m. in Sydney right now. 10.30 p.m. on Monday, strangely enough. I'm going to take a little break here. I'm going to play the Eric Benzamokin ad. Eric Benzamokin is going to give $500 to this show next week for a free roll. $500. It was originally going to be 300 It got up to 500 So if you have... Any legal questions, you can email him. And especially if you need arbitration or mediation services, though he does other things, not just that. But if you have any of that or have other legal needs, especially in California or uh, something that would be in federal court, then get a hold of him. Very approachable, very easy to talk to. Now, he's not one of these like intimidating lawyers who constantly wants to show off and talk down to you and, and uh, be a jerk. There's lawyers out there like that. I've met them before. He's not one of those guys. He's, he's a very easygoing, friendly guy who just uh, talks to you, uh, like, you know, like you're an equal and not someone that uh, he's looking down on or not someone who's acting like you're wasting his time. Even if you are wasting his time, he won't act like that. So keep in mind, he's been very, very nice to the site. If any lawyer deserves your business, it's him. And I thank you very much. I'm going to play this ad. I also thank him for having an ad I can even play so I can take a little breaks during the show. Or I shouldn't say breaks. One break. I never take more than one break. You guys notice that? I conduct an eight-hour show. At, at most, I will do one break. Tonight will not be an eight-hour show, by the way. But it's, it's been, what, three and a half hours already? Still have some more to go? So we still have some stuff to do. And we'll be back in... Less than five days. hope I have things to talk about at that point, but we will see. I've committed that January 10th is the day of the $500 free roll. Thanks to Eric Benzamogan. And I will be back shortly to complete the show. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money. He's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. 
And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Vegas is overrun with triple zero roulette games, and it's far worse than I thought it would be. I had been blaming the Venetian for this. I had thought the Venetian was the only casino doing this. They were the first one to try it, and that had led me to falsely believe all this time that they were the only ones guilty of this. But it has spread. It has spread big time. The triple zero has now infested Las Vegas, and it's very bad. There are now, this is according to John Mahaffey, who surveyed this. He's like a poker journalist, uh, poker and gambling journalist based out of Vegas. He surveyed this around Vegas. He found that there is one at the Four Queens. There are four triple zero roulette tables at the Aria, five at Bellagio, one at Binion's, two at Caesar's Palace, four at the Cosmopolitan, one at the Encore, four at the Excalibur, one at the Golden Nugget, one at Harris, two at the Link, Four at Luxor, one at Mandalay Bay, four at the MGM, five at the Mirage, three at New York, New York, four at Palazzo, one at Palms, two at Park MGM, the former Monte Carlo, one at Planet Hollywood, one at Tropicana, six at the Venetian, they're still leading the league in that, two at the Westgate, the former Las Vegas Hilton, and one at the Wynn. So it's spread everywhere. This reminds me of the 6-to-5 blackjack that did the same thing. It began in the early 2000s at Harris and then quickly spread to where now in Vegas it's unusual to find a game that pays 3-to-2 blackjack. In fact, the few that exist, they tend to promote because it's something that's considered special at this point, which is so stupid because at one point that was standard. So just like double-zero roulette was once standard and triple zero didn't even exist. Now triple zero is appearing in more and more places and may eventually become standard also. Some of these casinos also have double zero roulette, but some also don't. And if you're looking for a casino that just has better odds in general, that's on the strip, you may want to take a look at the Cromwell. 
the Cromwell is they don't market this very well, but they it's supposed to be like the player friendly casino in the Caesar's Empire. And they have a lot of games there that uh, the odds are better. They're not positive expectation, but that they're better than everything else on the strip. Now, you're not going to earn a lot of tier credits there. They have reduced tier credit earnings of those games. But nevertheless, if you're just looking to play those games with better odds on the strip, the Cromwell's a good place to go. Notice they were not listed in this triple zero roulette thing. They may even have a single zero there. I'm not sure. They definitely don't have worse than double zero. But as you've seen, it's spread to a lot of MGM properties and uh, Caesar's properties. Of course, the, the Venetian and Palazzo have it, but even independent ones like the Westgate and the Golden Nugget it's, it's gone to, and that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad how it has entered so many of these properties. So it's not even just Sheldon Adelson being greedy. This was something the Venetian brought in and other casinos noticed and said, hey, we're going to do it too. And it's all a part of giving the middle finger to any gambler who knows what he's doing. They now just want the recreational gambler who doesn't really understand the odds. And they no longer want the recreational gambler who understands the odds but will play anyway as long as it's a reasonable game. Basically, any player that 30 years ago was the typical player in the casino they don't want anymore. They don't want that type of player. Before, they were fine with that. For for many, many decades, Vegas was fine with players who understood the odds, who understood what made a good game and a bad game, but were still willing to play like negative expectation games but not way negative expectation. They were very happy to have those customers. Now they are not anymore. Now they want the people who do not understand why triple zero roulette is so bad. What should you do with this information? Uh, nothing, just something interesting to mention. And definitely avoid these triple zero roulette games no matter what. Do not play them. Do not be talked into playing them. You should boycott them on principle alone. Not much to say about this, but I just wanted to give that list to you guys and have you understand how this has been a transformation on the strip. That triple zero roulette is apparently here to stay. Something that the Macau Casino's hope is not here to stay is their declining profits. Macau is very far away from most of us. And, of course, it mostly caters to Asian gamblers because that's where it's close to. It's, uh, you may wonder what Macau is. It's actually a weird sort of uh, autonomous uh, region on the south coast of China. And uh, it is technically uh, part of China, but it also runs itself. That's why I say it's like an autonomous region of, of China. And, uh, of course, it mostly caters to rich Chinese gamblers. The smart American casino companies have a presence there. So Sheldon Adelson has a uh, Sands over there. And Wynn has a presence over there. 
But guess who does not have a presence over there? Caesars. They screwed up with all their expansion. They forgot about Macau. And they're sorry about it, believe me. You can't just open up casinos at will there, too. Yeah, There's uh, only so many casinos that can open there, and Caesars has been shut out. Believe me, they wish they were in Macau. Macau is also known to be a location of some very, very, very high-stakes poker games where you have to have a tremendously deep bankroll to play. And a lot of poker pros simply don't have that bankroll to play against some of these super rich gamblers that want to show up and throw a lot of money around. But yet these players aren't very good. And it would be a great opportunity to play against them if only you had the bankroll to withstand the swings or even have enough money to get through one hand. It has been long rumored that Tom Dwan was playing there and was backed by the triads. And that's how he had the money to play in those games. Phil Ivey also played in those games, though it's not clear if he was putting up his own money or if others were backing him. But this is not really about poker in Macau. This is about how Macau, which was once considered a way to print free money, if you owned a casino there, how they are starting to struggle a bit. So they actually experienced their worst monthly decline, that is monthly uh, where they're comparing a month uh, to a year before that in the same month. And businesses like to do that because there will be seasonal changes as to when tourists will come in. So they want to compare month to month. How do we do this December versus last December sort of thing? And when they see a decline from one year to the other in the same month, then they start to get concerned. Well, this has been happening in Macau in the end of 2019, where they had a 13.7% drop from 2018 of December to the December in 2019. So those two Decembers, a 13.7% drop in revenue in 2019. November also wasn't very good. There was an 8.5% drop from November 2018 to the corresponding November in 2019. Now, the annual revenue was not quite as bad. It uh, The Macau casinos lost, uh, were, were down, they didn't lose money, but they were down 3.4% in 2019 versus 2018 overall. Still, the final quarter has been the big problem, and they're concerned now that it just seems like the loss, that, that the decline in revenue is increasing every month compared to the year before. They went from 8.5% down in November to 13.7% down in December. Now, they still brought in some very healthy revenue. They had the revenue combined of a $36.47 billion in 2019, which was actually down, as I said, from the previous year. In December of 2019, they generated... $2.85 billion in revenue. So they're still doing quite well there. They're just seeing a decline in revenue, and they're, they're starting to wonder if uh, this is going to be a big problem in the future. Now, why is this happening? Well, the there's a few matters here of what's happening. First of all, there's a, a general economic slowdown in China, and the U.S. actually is affecting this in some way. There's a 
possible upcoming trade war with the U.S. between them and China. And then there's these protests in Hong Kong, and uh, it, it's just it's made for an environment where some people just don't feel like coming to Macau that normally we're going there. Uh, what also happened was that there were some travel restrictions in place where the president of China was uh, going to come in and there was a lot stronger security and a lot of people weren't allowed in. So that also made it tougher for them to make money in Macau. Now, the president, when he came to Macau, the president of China, he urged them to diversify their economy and not to count on gambling so much because this can quickly change, as they've seen. There is some belief that in 2020 they're going to do better, that some of these factors are going to go away, and some of these were unique to the time period, and that uh, 2020 will be just fine. But... uh, Of the 12 months in 2019, eight of those 12 saw revenue that was less in the, in those months corresponding to the, uh, the 2018 months. So two thirds of the month saw a lower revenue than uh, the previous year. And that's a little concerning to them. So it's not like Macau is dead, but you never like to see when things are going the wrong direction if you're in that business. And I'm not sure how many casinos are in Macau. That is something I didn't look up. Now I'm curious about this. I'm going to look this up myself. Number of casinos. I'm going to look this up and type it in. Number of casinos in Macau. There are 38. Wow. The biggest one is the Venetian. Sheldon Adelson makes a lot of money there. That I knew. The the ones I recognize quickly, scrolling down the list, there's the Sands Macau, there's the Venetian Macau, there's the MGM Macau, there's the Wynn Macau. And as I said, no Caesars property. So we will see where this goes. I don't think Macau's going to be in trouble. They're just not booming as much as they were before, but I think they'll be fine. Sometimes decline in revenue, which is inevitable, but just because you've declined off your peak doesn't mean you're not still doing well. Putting the whole thing simpler. Uh, let's say you were, making a million dollars per year during the poker boom playing poker. And then when Black Friday hit and other factors change and just the game became harder, you were then making uh, 500,000 a year playing poker. That's a 50% decline, but you're still doing quite well and you really don't have any room to complain. So just kind of think of it that way. Sometimes you hear about a decline in revenue and you, you instinctively think they're losing money and they're not. Let's go from Macau to Louisiana. I've talked before about gambling laws and how stupid it is when they attempt to make restrictive gambling laws that allow some things under some circumstances, but not others. 
in what's often an attempt to prevent full casino gambling from exploding within the state. So what ends up happening is first the state says, no gambling, we don't want any gambling, we're not Nevada, stay out. Then eventually they start to soften. And lawmakers start to be convinced, well, there's got to be ways to allow gambling to where it won't interfere with people's lives and to where we, we can kind of separate the gambling from everywhere else. So there's been various ideas in different states that have been implemented. There's the Indian gaming where they're only allowed on Indian tribes and people figure, okay, good. They're going to stay out of the normal cities where non-Native Americans don't live. And that if the Indian tribes who have sovereign land anyway, if they want to have them, then fine. And this will help the Indian tribes too. Everybody wins, right? Well, not really. Uh, there's all kinds of problems with Indian gaming I've talked about before. And it, uh, what it attempts to accomplish, it doesn't. Very few members of the tribe end up benefiting from it. Like a few members get almost all the benefit. And because they're on, quote, sovereign land, and because these states don't really think about this when they allow these tribes to run the casinos, then it's up to the Native Americans who are running these casinos to be the judge, jury, and executioner about anything that happens at these casinos, which means you can't sue them, except in their own tribal court, which is useless. So they get away with a lot of crap. And there's no strong gaming commission overseeing them or protecting players' interests. So that's the Indian casino problem. But there's also the riverboat casinos. And we don't see that in the U.S., or not in the Western U.S., because the Western U.S. doesn't really have rivers, or really significant rivers. But the, the central and eastern U.S. do. So riverboat casinos are casinos that are only allowed to exist on the river. And the original thinking was, you may not want casinos in the towns of the state. You don't want casinos sitting on land where they become an issue for the town and might bring a criminal element there and might cause other problems for the community. But what if it's just on a boat somewhere? What if a boat's just floating down the river? That can't really cause any trouble, right? Any trouble will be confined to the boat on the river. So laws were passed to allow casinos that were on a boat. As long as the boat is on the river and moving down the river, then everything's fine. And so there were. There were riverboat casinos that you would board, and the boat would just pointlessly go up and down the river just uh, to adhere to the law. The boat wasn't really traveling anywhere. It just was moving on the river, sometimes very slowly. But technically, it was a riverboat casino. Well, then someone said, hey, why does there have to be a boat pointlessly moving if it's not really going anywhere? Shouldn't it be fine if the boat is just on the water somewhere? So they said, okay. And when I say they, I mean states with these riverboats casinos. Uh, but we're talking about Louisiana right now. So in Louisiana, they said, okay, fine. You don't have to move down the river. You just have to be on the river. 
So that's what they did. And then what uh, what started happening is there was no point to have a boat go up and down the river. In fact, it made it difficult for people to get on and off the boat because you can't just jump off the boat while it's on the river. So this way, to allow people to get on and off the boat, they would just park the boat on the river right by the shore and people could enter and exit whenever they wanted. So at this point, it pretty much became a land-based casino, except it wasn't actually on land. It was on a permanently docked boat, a big boat, that just sat on the river that people could walk onto from the dock. Very stupid. Like, if you're going to allow that, you might as well just have it on land. But that's the way it was for many years. There was one exception granted, and that was in the city of New Orleans. There was an exception granted to Harris, New Orleans. So that's the only land-based casino, the only one that's actually allowed to be on land, and that's the entire one, it's the only one in Louisiana like that, the only one that was allowed. Well, finally, someone realized this whole thing was stupid. They realized the whole riverboat casino is a sham if the boats aren't going anywhere, and the boats are just parked right there in the dock. That the whole point to confine this to a moving boat, once that's been taken away, once that requirement's gone, who cares if the boat technically sits on the river if it's accessible from land for people who just walk on 24 hours a day? So they realized this was absurd. And the law was changed in Louisiana to allow these casinos to just move on to land. But up until now... No casinos had actually done it yet. Though there, there were plans to do it, it just hadn't happened yet. Well, finally, it is happening. And the reason it took some time is because they have to apply and get approved. But the Louisiana Gaming Control Board approved the first application for a riverboat casino to finally stop being a riverboat casino and actually have a dry land presence. That is, aside from Harris, New Orleans, which was never a riverboat casino in the first place. So, the Isle of Capri Casino in Lake Charles finally had an application approved. And uh, they're going to build a new casino. It's going to cost $113 million. And it's going to be very close to where the current riverboat of the Isle of Capri is at the moment. I have mentioned the Isle of Capri before on this show because they are an El Dorado property. And El Dorado is the purchaser of Caesars. So I guess in a way this is going to be a Caesars property. This will be triple the size of the riverboat. And they're going to have 120 more slot machines, 7 more table games, and more restaurants. And there are 14 other riverboat casinos currently in Louisiana. All of them are applying to end this boat nonsense and just build something on regular land. Gambling was legalized in Louisiana in uh, 1994. And aside from Harris, New Orleans, everything else had to be on a riverboat. And uh, at the time, they had to move. Finally, they changed it to where the boats didn't have to move, as I mentioned. And then, I think it was about like 18 months ago, they passed a law allowing them to uh, apply to move on land. 
which should have been allowed in the first place. Now, why is the state finally softening on this, aside from realizing the whole thing was stupid and pointless? Well, it's all about money, as you might guess. The casinos have been declining in revenue, and this was thought to be a way to bring the revenue back up. Why do the why does the state care about that? Because then their revenue is less if the casino's revenue is less. So the state wants more money, and they can only get that if the casinos make more money, and that can only happen if the casinos have a more pleasant environment than a riverboat. A riverboat that is parked permanently. So they've decided to do away with that. And that the entire point of what they did is moot if it's going to be a parked riverboat. The problem here, the problem with, I shouldn't say the problem here, the problem as to why this occurred in the first place is this whole idea of gambling is okay under these circumstances, but not not those circumstances. And whenever there's an attempt to do that, it ends up being something that is just pointless and stupid and uh, player-unfriendly and makes the venue worse. And it doesn't stop anyone from from problem gambling. And that's what's so stupid. If people want to gamble, they'll gamble in whatever way is available. And they're not going to be dissuaded because things are a little bit different. The people are still going to gamble if they really want to, whether it's a riverboat that's parked or a land-based casino. They're going to gamble whether it's a real blackjack or some stupid form of blackjack because they're not allowed to offer real blackjack. They will gamble if they can only play poker instead of playing other casino games. So what's usually being attempted here is either the fear of the spread of gambling and they're trying to hold that back or they don't want cities to be burdened with casinos that are going to uh, cause societal problems. So they say, well, okay, if it's on a boat, eh, it couldn't be that bad. We just don't want it on land. But you see what happens. It doesn't end up staying on the boat. And every time someone says asks for an exception to the law, and then an exception is made, then the original spirit of the law becomes pointless in the first place. And that's why all these silly restrictions there just need to end. And each state just needs to answer this simple question. Do we want gambling in this state, or do we not? And if you don't want it, fine. Then don't allow it. And if you do want it, then allow full gambling. And let each county or each city or both decide whether they want it in their locality. It's that simple. So if you don't want cities getting ruined by casinos, let the cities decide for themselves if they want casinos in the city. There's a The upside to having casinos in the city is it, it makes money. It generates tax revenue. The downside is it can bring a bad element and it can uh, also bring on gambling problems for those that live nearby. So each city and each county can decide this on their own. And the state just needs to say, can you have it or not? But that's all they should do. 
they should not be restrictive. They should not say what kind of games you can play or whether it has to be a boat or, or a, a dry land building. It's foolish. It's stupid. It, it's not helping anything. So let's look at the Louisiana situation. First, you've got this weird thing where Harris was allowed to be an exception to this. So they had a huge edge. And then the rest of the state, there's 14 riverboats. And these are all kind of crappy. So people who want to gamble, the gambling addicts are still going to go and go to these crappy boats and just deal with this this crappy seating environment on a boat when they could be in a nice casino at least while they're gambling. They And it, the, the point is, that does it really matter if people are, are going to lose their money on a crappy boat or in a beautiful casino? The answer is no. If they're, if they're going to lose all their money, they're going to lose all their money. It's going to happen in either place. So why not at least let the customers have what they want and let the businesses offer what they want? And if you don't like what gambling is bringing to your community, then the community can always say, no, we don't want it. Or if the state doesn't want gambling at all, fine, they can say, we don't want gambling. I, I support the right of a state to say, we don't want gambling in our state. I just don't understand this limited gambling crap. Either allow it or don't allow it. It's so weird being in commerce and they can't offer real blackjack. They have to offer these weird form of blackjack. And any of these uh, Indian casinos in California can't offer dice games. There can't be craps. They have to do card craps where you draw cards instead of throwing dice. What's the point? Why have card craps instead of regular craps? Why, 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 did, why does dice become the factor which makes uh, craps so bad? Craps with cards is fine. Craps with dice is bad. It doesn't make any sense. We're starting to see a backlash to a lot of these laws. That's why the sports betting law, which has been there since 1992, got changed to where every state now can have it if they want it. And that's why we're seeing the expansion of online gambling. Not so much online poker, but online gambling, including sports betting. That's why we're seeing these riverboat laws being changed. We're seeing people starting to understand. We're seeing lawmakers starting to understand that this whole thing was stupid. That either you're going to make gambling accessible and make it pleasant, or you just shouldn't have it. You shouldn't have this quasi-pseudo-casino crap where people still lose money, but the whole thing sucks. It's kind of like the worst of both worlds. And often these games that they are forced to have when full casino games are not allowed are actually worse for the player. Look at the thing I've been talking about in commerce with the player banking. These player-banked games, which were originally conceived to prevent the house from being able to offer casino-style games where they benefit from the player losing has resulted in them having contracts or possibly secretly owning these corporations that bank the games and that benefit from the players losing. And the players have to pay an additional commission to the casino in addition to already having bad odds in the game itself. And the games are not even like normal casino games. They're always these weird modifications that are usually player unfriendly. So why? What's the point? Why even have those offered? Why not just have regular blackjack where the house can bank it? And there's flaws in these uh, plans 
to where these type of corporations can exist in the first place and people can get banned for trying to take the corporation's action. We talked about this last time. This is the type of crap that happens when you try to do non-standard things in an attempt to, quote, prevent full casino gambling. So it's just very simple. Allow gambling or don't. That's it. Sometimes making things overly complicated just ruins everything. Sometimes simplicity is good. Sometimes you just ask a simple question. Gambling bad or gambling good? Which one? That's it. That's all it ever should have been. Okay, so I think this might be our last topic here. Not this one, but the next topic will be the last one. And that will be sports betting. Sports betting has expanded once again and now has come to another state, this time New Hampshire. So New Hampshire is the latest state to add sports betting. Governor Chris Sununu signed legislation back in June which legalized sports betting online and live. But there was not going to be sports betting just yet. But finally one is launching. An online sports betting operation has launched in, uh, it actually launched on December 30th. And live sports books are going to be coming sometime early this year. The uh, governor of New Hampshire actually went on Boston Sports Radio, even though this is New Hampshire, but uh, sports betting is not legal in Massachusetts yet, so I guess they were trying to get entice people to go there to bet, and said that New Hampshire would have sports betting there in place in time for bets on the Super Bowl. So I guess he kept to that because it's running. And even though it's not uh, at a live location yet, it's only online, you can technically bet on the NFL already in New Hampshire right now. And we're not even at the Super Bowl yet. We're almost a month away. Now, in order to bet, of course, you have to be within the state of New Hampshire to do so. You don't have to live there, but you have to be within their borders when the bet is placed. And this is being overseen by the uh, the state's lottery. In fact, it's not only being overseen, it's actually being run by the state's lottery. But the sports books are going to be run by DraftKings through a contract situation. So technically, the state's lottery is uh, is running the sports book, but uh, it's going to be operated by DraftKings. And they're basically splitting the revenue 50-50. They are supposedly going to be taking the funds they make. When I say they, I mean the state lottery. The, the, the half of the revenue they get is going to go directly to schools in New Hampshire. The very, fa- the very first wager was placed at a restaurant in, Man- in Manchester, New Hampshire by the governor himself. He placed the ceremonial first wager <laughs> while at a restaurant in, in Manchester. There will eventually be 10 sports books within the state of New Hampshire. And they uh, had to be locally approved. 
So uh, Berlin, Claremont, Franklin, Laconia, Manchester, and Summersworth have already voted to approve the, lo- the sports book in their lo- in their cities, but uh, already four cities have rejected it: Concord, Dover, Nashua, and Rochester. And I guess uh, there's still other cities voting on it. The only two in the area, the New England area, that are offering sports betting are New Hampshire and Rhode Island. That's why people in Massachusetts will need to go to one of these two states if they want to do legal sports betting. That brings us to the question of how many sports betting states are there currently? Or may totally will keep track of that. So at the moment, here are the states that have full legalized sports betting. Oregon, Nevada, New Mexico, Iowa, Arkansas, Indiana, Mississippi, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire. So that's, we're getting there. 13 states, 13 of the 50 states right now have legalized sports betting. Which ones are close? There's actually six, no, seven. There's seven that are close. Well, six states in a territory. D.C., North Carolina, Michigan, Illinois, Tennessee, Montana, and Colorado have passed a bill to legalize sports betting. just hasn't gone online yet and everywhere else it's going to be a while believe it or not uh, they even introduced a bill in Hawaii to legalize sports betting which is surprising because they're one of two states with no gambling the other one being Utah there are only six states that have made no action whatsoever to legalize sports betting that's Alaska, Idaho, Utah, which probably will never have it, Nebraska, and Wisconsin. Those are the only six that have really shown no interest in it at all. The rest of the states I haven't listed have all introduced bills at some point, but uh, they haven't gone anywhere. If you're wondering about California, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. The last real attempt to get sports betting legalized in California was in 2017. So I don't know uh, when that's going to happen. I think it's eventually going to come, but it's just not really happening in California for whatever reason. Texas, you may wonder about Texas, another big state. They have more of a recent effort in uh, February 2019 a representative named Eddie Lucio introduced a 15-page bill that was related to the regulation of sports betting, but it never went anywhere. Texas also has no legalized card rooms or casinos. So I don't know if they're going to be legalizing it anytime soon either. If you notice, most of these states that have full sports betting are in the east 
The only ones out west that currently have legalized sports betting, aside from Nevada, who's had it the entire time, are Oregon and New Mexico. Everything else is uh, in the central or eastern time zone, though Montana and Colorado have passed bills, just a matter of when it's going to happen. The uh, Montana situation, they were expected to already have sports betting by 2020. Like, I'm, like before 2020 even began, but it just didn't occur. In Colorado, um, supposedly this will get going sometime in the late spring or early summer. So it's, it's coming to most places, but if you're not in one of these states where it's either already passed or already operating, then... It's going to be a little while till you see it. It's basically those 13 states already with the sports betting and the six states in one territory with bills that have been passed. And for the other 31 states, it's either never coming or a while away. Well, what's not a while away is our next show and our $500 free roll. That is just four and a half days away. On Friday, January 10th, probably around uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash, or sorry, Twitter.com slash PokerFraudAlert for more information. You can also just go to PokerFraudAlert.com, and I'll post information about there, about it there as well. Trader Ruski for coming on for the time you could. I know this show started very late. I know this is a pretty uh, non-poker show tonight. It's kind of casino heavy. That's the way it falls sometimes. That's where the stories were. Sometimes we have more poker stories, sometimes we have less. But that's what we have for you this week. The first week of 2020. As we carry on through the next decade here on PokerFraudAlert.com. And I like how we have these free rolls. It's cool how our listeners get to just get this free money. We're not a huge show. We don't have the budget like other shows do. But yet we're the only ones with a free roll. Explain that one. All these other shows that were printing money, they didn't have a free roll. We have a free roll. And that says something about the listeners to this show. I mean, yeah, we have Eric Benzamokin, who's super generous, but we have others who also donate. And we've had this for our entire eight-year run. That's something to think about. Friday should be the day of this show for the most part case you're looking to plan around it that's that's the day we're going to stick on for the foreseeable future and it's a little easier on me because uh, benjamin's not going to school the next day and that's just friday's a better day but sometimes i have things to do on friday so i can't do it this week was one of those 
apologize for the repeated delays of this week's show, but it is now done, and it will be available in the archives. And I am happy that you are here to listen to me as you are every week. See you in four and a half days. Shalom. Shalom.